Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's doing well. Everyone's doing good. Everyone's doing super good. I was just reading about the multi-million dollar orgasm cult in Hollywood. Uh, oh, the um, the O meditation? Orgasmic yeah. meditation it is such um, a bizarre... Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't already talked about this. Yeah, it's super... <laughs> super strange it just reminded me of nixium you know it is except what's weird about it is it's apparently run by women so it's yes. like there isn't like a like a, a patriarch like creep guru in charge as far as i know there might be um but it's very weird it's it's uh i mean do you want me to describe what i know about it yeah yeah so, go for it. so apparently this is widely advertised it's and it's been advertised to the point where I've actually heard two relatively famous people, two comedians actually talk about their own experience with it. One of them was Nikki wow. Glazer, uh, whose husband, I guess they have an open relationship and she wanted him as his first step into that to go to this class. Theo Vaughn, comedian, mm-hmm. who's I guess was on road rules back in the late 90s, he actually talked about how he was doing it instead of having any sex for like a year, he would just go to these wait, classes. Wait, 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 because it's it's men who enroll in the classes and then uh, stimulate the clitoris of just random women? Totally random. It could be a like a 70-year-old woman. They randomly pair you up. Why these- would someone like Theo join that class? I don't know, because I think that he was getting into the no fap, like sort of like right wing Jordan Peterson schema of things. And to him, he thought that like just giving women orgasms, but not like ever getting off himself was like really like making him like really like enlightened. Like pure. I can't imagine going to a class and then having like a class specifically for you to pay to jerk off just random strange guys. It just is like absolutely unfathomable. It is unfathomable. And apparently yeah the whole thing is like a guided basically clitoral stimulation guided meditation it's set up extremely specifically they have all these like um weird names for the things like they call Mm -hmm. it your nest where the women like set up this like little pillow nest to like spread their Mm -hmm. legs open and then the guys were assigned i think they also let women do it as well it's not like a heterosexual yeah no women women do it too but mm-hmm. the idea, the prospect of just you being a woman and getting randomly paired up with like a random stranger to touch your clit is like a very bizarre uh, thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah, even I think they watched... have like a social, I don't even think they have like a, a cocktail hour or anything like that. Like any other thing <laughs> like this where you have like anonymous <laughs> random sex, it's like always very like, you know, there's served alcohol, there's like a party atmosphere. This is mm-hmm. doesn't sound like that at all. It's like a set up like a meditation class. Yeah, the woman who... Uh, I forget the woman's name, Deo Doan. God, I'm so horrible with names. Um, but I just watched like an ad from her this morning because oh, wow. this is trending on Twitter. And she was just like, this is not sex. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This is the opposite of sex. She's like, so, and, and she was like, and you should not practice this in any sexual way. This is not foreplay. It's just like, what is going on? That is so funny. I mean, Unless she just like total new age head up her ass, I, I find that she's lying. I yeah, mean, they were making twelve million dollars a year Whoa. endorsed by people like Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Oh my god. Chloe, yeah, Khloe Kardashian and stuff. Oh wow! Yeah, so there are crazy. other celebrities who have hyped this up. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and here's let me describe a little more of how it works. So 
they make you wear rubber gloves and they give you like lube and that's mm-hmm. how it looks that's like what visually is happening in the room and that's just so mm-hmm. odd and weird like the whole thing just seems really bizarre it's i don't understand i could see someone going to one and just be like wow this is crazy let's go to one of these classes yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to take it seriously as a meditation practice that's not sexual, you would just basically have to be like in complete denial or, you know, I don't even know. It's a very strange thing. From what I've heard about it, I guess the only good thing about it compared to these other cult LA scam things is that it doesn't involve like sexually predatory. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem to be to have a huge problem with like sexually predatory men doing things to women it's all very like carefully orchestrated right, by right. these women who run it which is makes it sort of unusual right i think i think the main problem and that's why it's getting played recently because this has been out for decades yeah and it's like very new age and it's very centered around silicon valley tech people um who want to appear to be like enlightened or whatever like the burning man idiots who also are just like these executives at tech companies but anyway um, apparently it's like very predatory financially. So it, mm. it's just a big racket, you know, it's, it's them just, we like subscribe, right? Yeah. It's like, they'll just hound you to do the next class and the next mm-hmm. class. And they're like $12,000. And then if you can even get clearly stimulated by like the woman herself and she charges like 30 oh, grand wow. and it's just like the most absurd, huh? I said, Oh wow. That's amazing. Oh, what? Oh, my. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, this is even better. Oh, my God. Mike just said. Oh, Mike is what Mike knows about this, too. <laughs> Wait, I love how Mike just read this article, too. Wait, Mike, come, come in here really quick and just say what you're yeah, just saying. Come I want to hear Mike. Co- Mike, come in here real quick. Okay, Mike, go for it. Wait, are you recording? Yeah, <laughs> oh, shit. Um, yeah, no, the, you're, the woman who runs the cult, you pay $36,000 to stimulate her clit. You get like a personal one-on-one class where you um, get to give her an orgasm. Um, and then the way that they would get people to be able to pay for the classes is they had all these different credit card companies on deck where they would, if you couldn't afford the class, they'd say, we'll just take out this credit card and pay for the class with the credit card. So a lot of the members just went into like serious credit card debt to be able to, to stimulate the woman's uh, clit. That's so <laughs> they didn't bizarre. Have the money. <laughs> wow. Well, Okay, well, one thing I wanted to add, just because I, I feel like we've already talked about this too long, but the one thing I know <laughs> about it, which is fascinating, Abby, is that this has been going on for like 20 or 30 years or whatever. I don't yeah. know how, exactly how long, but like the actual practice, like the physical practice has been like exactly the same. And the instructor just like tells you to just like do like a circular clit rub and like this specific right. motion for like the entire minutes. time, like every single class. There is no like different right. technique taught to like how to stimulate the clit, like right. here's the different ways, nothing. It's all the exact same little like circular clit rub timed to like, I think it's like nine to 12 minutes or something. It's yeah, it's very it, specific. It's per- it's perplexing that people would get caught up into this where they would be in some larger pyramid scheme, uh, you know, spending their life savings on mm-hmm. something like this that is so specifically uh, just monotonous. It's like the same exact thing every single time. What are you exactly learning unless it's like the community aspect? I don't know. But we never actually talked about Nixium and I don't want to go off on the Nixium thing, but it even that I can like see way more you know, getting invested in something like that where um, it's painted as like a self-empowerment thing and then the society protectors and the DOS subsects of the cult are something that you feel like 
you're learning like the intuitively like what it means to be a woman and what and what yeah it's like to be a man and then like not knowing that it's all actually being engineered by Keith you know like this weird patriarchal misogynist who is actually like hates women and shit yeah and, and then just like uses it for abuse and exploitation but it's like you think that it's actually designed to empower you and stuff like i i could actually see the layers of psychology being eroded away in with in a manipulative fashion to get to that point i really mm -hmm. could but this is like just like how the fuck does anyone spend a hundred grand doing this shit well and like the woman even said like this is what buddhists actually meant when they said they achieved nirvana wow. it was actually just orgasming the 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 <laughs> secret of all a lot of these ancient religions is sex was not like before the puritan era it was uh, sort of interlaced with buddhism and hinduism i mean like the kama sutra all these oh, like yeah. you can find plenty of buddhist art you know that oh, looks everywhere that's oh, very yeah. very like just hardcore porn you know looks like religious imagery it's yeah it was funny just side note when i was in thailand and i collected all of these cool buddhas everywhere and i got home and like underneath a lot of the buddhas there'd be really graphic tantric sex like art thing oh interesting like carved into the bottom of these buddhas and stuff so yeah definitely true also i just wanted to say that if there was somebody like if there was some kind of secret thing behind this other than just like a money-making scam like where they were filming everybody and someone was mm -hmm. collecting all the tapes you know that would be oh, a whole other level that would be more like nexium i guess from my point of view the thing that i understand about it is like there are people out there who probably are horny, lonely, single, who don't know how to meet other people. And if you see a flyer for something mm -hmm. where it's like, you are guaranteed to touch a pussy at this class, like if that's <laughs> the general conceit of it, like there's really no other class or sex club or polyamorous community where it's like, if you come to this class, you get to touch a pussy. Like that is not you know what I mean? So that alone. Well, that's I the think, creepiest thing to me about someone who would engage in it as the recipient. Well, that's you that too. I mean? It would have to be. Yeah, that is strange too. It makes more sense to me to be the one giving it. Like if right. you're a man and you're lonely and right. you don't. Right. Or you just like want to check this out and it's weird. Yeah. But no, the other way around is interesting. And to think that, yeah, it's it's odd. It is. A, I, I don't get it. Um, but I've heard people talk about it in depth and I was fascinated by it. Just hearing about it, it is fascinating. I've never seen it anything like that before. Wait, did you end up watching Seduced, the one no. by... And you, you, you told me about how it's like showing the other, another angle of it. But my right. impression from the... What was the one called made by the, what the bleep guy called? The Vow. Yeah, The Vow. I found it very interesting the story was very interesting but like my main takeaway from it and i already talked to you about this was that yeah he was clearly manipulating his own narrative to like absolve himself and like all of his own social circle like from it was so it had that very obvious imprint on it to the point where i was like what is the real story here so yeah that was a big problem yeah so for people who haven't heard of this uh allison mack well i like forget a, the show nickelodeon that like child star yeah. i thought yeah yeah, and so I remember just a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2019, that there was this roundup of people who were arrested for like prostitution and uh, sex trafficking and all this shit. And it was all tied to this cult called Nexium, run by this guy named Keith Ranieri. And then there were two subsequent documentary series that came out, one on stars called Seduced, that was telling India's story, one of the primary uh, like slave working under Keith Ranieri who's also like the daughter of some royal family. 
And then the other documentary on HBO was called The Vow, and it was created by the guy who made the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? And I felt like both of them were just trying to absolve themselves. Like Mm. The Vow took a really long time to even understand what the hell was going on. And it, and it wasn't nearly as crazy as the facts that came out afterward about Keith Raniere and this other guy's involvement, you know, because he was the one filming all of this shit. And so I felt like, yeah, I felt like he put all that footage out there to basically just say, like, I wasn't a part of this dark stuff and that I got out of it when I found out that they were branding women and stuff. But the seduced one is so crazy because that's when it explains how he was able to sexually abuse the women because the vow on HBO as fascinating as it is about like psychology and all that shit and how they were manipulated were manipulated in this mass way. The seduced one was just like so bizarre because it talked about shit that he was doing to women like 20 years ago, like way before, yeah, uh, like, way before um, DOS. He, he basically like had sex with like 15 year old girls, forced them to have abortions. And, and he was already just, like, like forced, a poly, poly like, guy with yeah. like, tons of different girlfriends, like yeah. in the organization. Like, yes. That, see, even in the, in the vow, I felt like he kind of, it was like the narrative in the first few episodes. It's like, well, you guys didn't already know he was doing that. Yes. Like, why was it such a surprise when you found out he was like fucking and having sex with the other women in the organization now? Yeah, they were all shocked. They all acted feigned that was shock. Phony. And it's like, dude, come on now. Yeah. You know, and then like even this woman who was like a Mexican immigrant, he put her in a room and she stayed there for like two years because she she like liked another guy. Because that's the thing is he could fuck whoever he wanted to, mm-hmm. but you couldn't date or even like look at other men. Which... Otherwise, he would uh, he would like lock you away or you know ruin your life. Which so. is a common theme with a lot of these like abusive predatory people. It's like they you know they act like they're polyamorous and like really like um, yeah, sort of right. evolved in that way, like base nectar, which we're yeah. not going to talk about today. But we we kind of plan to. <laughs> but we, it's so it's such a big story. But he was doing the same thing. It was like he would sort of mm-hmm, groom all mm-hmm, these young mm-hmm. women and say like, I'm just like a wild animal. Like I need multiple partners. It's natural. But then when they would date other people, he would like ref- he would either cut them off or like try to control them into only seeing him. And it's like, it's odd because it, it's like it does show that sort of that narcissistic personality disorder predatory mindset where it's like they're, they also get jealous and territorial, you know? Totally. Um, yeah, which no, just Keith kind of Neary runs counter to the sociopath. whole idea of being like polyamorous. You, oh, yeah. No, so. there, it's always layers, layers and layers. And like the whole appearance of being this new age forward thinking self-empowerment thing was really just cryptically like a, a controlling, like sexual control. Mm-hmm. But it was like run by like a total fucking sociopath who really loved the fact that he had all of these like slaves. I mean, it gets really dark. And when the Seduce series opens, it actually shows Keith Raniere just casually throwing out that it would it would feel good to actually trigger warning everyone. Um, he talks about raping a baby. He was just like, this is really shocking to hear this. He's like, but if I were to just like rape a baby, he's like, yeah, that would feel really good, right? What the He's hell? like, but that's really crazy to hear. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, this is, cr- how are people not walking out of the room? That is, uh, that's you pretty know? funny. I mean, no, it's, it's insane. I it don't, it's it insane. Me- remember his little, well, the, actually, the, I thought that one of the funniest things about the vow was like his sort of masculine, masculine values class where it was like pep talks for men. It was almost kind of and like they would a, like punch each other. 
I I don't remember that. I just remember like the rhetoric he would use where he would like sort of swear and use like crass talk about like women <laughs> in a crass way, almost like a pickup yeah. artist lecture or or sort of like an alt right, you know, anti feminism thing. It was it was just odd. It had flavors of that and I was like, That's so weird. No, for sure. No, that that's exactly what he was. He seemed like he almost just had complete contempt for women. The whole thing was about controlling women and Sure all of that but yeah no totally like he did come across as like a pickup artist guy but one quick thing about bass nectar going along with what you're saying is that um yeah like all of the text messages that were revealed even audio messages that that women recorded from him one of them and they were all 17 16 you know because he had these all ages shows uh specifically to just have the appearance that he was like this inclusive musician that was really you know progressive and all this stuff when really it was literally just to like groom and and be a predator to young women but one of the women uh was posting you know she's a fucking senior in high school and she's posting like cute selfies of herself on instagram you know she's able to do what she wants she's not like in a relationship with bass nectar but i apparently she was one of many girlfriends that he was like hanging on a thread and so he wrote her and he was like, this picture that you posted on Instagram is like really a big turnoff. And he was like, I'm sure if you saw that I was like a secret Nazi and posting all this shit about Hitler, he's like, you'd probably just be a little turned off. He's like, if that's what you want to do, that's great. He was like, but I'm just super not into it. And I just like, don't want to date. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with that's it. So if you're going to post weird. like cute photos of yourself online for other guys. That's so much worse than being just someone who just like fucks a bunch of groupies at concerts and then like ghosts them in a way because it's like he's doing it's like he's getting into their head it's like he doesn't treat these women basically are groupies to him but he's acting like he owns them it's yes, very right. very bizarre i've never right. really heard of why. anyone else doing that in the music industry no. maybe that i mean maybe there's other stories like that but that is odd behavior unusual even yeah. for a predator you know like that well, that's why women are actually coming forward and suing him for damages because he Good. psychologically manipulated them and controlled them for so long and like really fucked with them. Good. Um, like that kind of shit, you know, like what does that do to someone who's 17 years old and they worship this older musician? Yeah. And you, you also know? have to wonder, like, what are these bands trying to accomplish when they're like in their late 20s or like in their early 30s and making music that appeals to young teenage girls? What is what mm -hmm, purpose are mm -hmm. they trying to serve? What was Oz Cutergy's EDM group Mode Step? What purpose was that trying to serve when it was making music that sounds like Britney Spears, like infused with the EDM? Like it's got that same sensibility. Was that music made for people who are of age and sexually mature or was it even made for teenagers? I, it's just weird and creepy for me. <laughs> Um, Do you know Oz Kajari has a podcast? Ouch. Can you imagine listening to his fucking podcast? Who are these people that actually takes him seriously? I mean, I don't know. Like Bellingcat cut out. Yeah. Charlie Anarchy, like, like other like weird fake leftists like Alexander Reed Ross, all the red brown alliance, like weirdos. But it's like, like even <laughs> it's like even though even Alexander Reed Ross and like Charlie Arkey as as fed like as they are, it it is hard to imagine that they would even be on board with like the whole Jeremy Corbyn is, is an anti-Semite thing. That's true. But like, they, that's I think like they a like really specific. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, some of those UK people are more wacky in that regard. Like they're just more yeah. obvious propagandists. It's like sort of right. like Majid Nawaz. Like he went full, right. almost soft QAnon. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, I remember Which that. Which is hilarious. Shit. There's a lot of, a lot of people who went soft QAnon. It's funny Lots. that Sam Harris actually 
out of all those people, like remain the most con- like principled, consistent with his own shit. Like Ruben went total Trumper, Majid Nawaz yep. went Trumper, and then like kind of like stopped the steal QAnon. And uh, and Sam Harris just like became like extremely anti-Trump and like generic. <laughs> I know. Dem. I kind of I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's funny to see the evolution. Oh, and then by mentioning Sam Harris, just really quickly, I wanted to say that on yeah. an episode of Joe Rogan Experience from two days ago, Joe Rogan himself talking to Dave Smith, who's a libertarian comic, mm-hmm. said a million Iraqis were killed by the U.S. Ba-boom! And it's just so funny that Sam Harris literally stopped his appearance. He went on Joe Rogan years ago and said, Joe, I have a, something I need to talk about. Like, he literally interrupts his own appearance and says, like, mm-hmm. that guest you had on, she blasted a fire hose of bullshit. And the example he gives is that you said on Joe Rogan's show that a million Iraqis were killed in Iraq. Right. And that's the right. example that he used to sh- literally interrupt his own per- like appearance. Who does that shit? That shit's weird. Right. Yep. Yep. Anyways, I'll, a million I'll still, Iraqis died. My own narcissistic uh, belief is that the intellectual dark web itself is an emanation of your appearances on Joe Rogan. It's like a n- reaction against them. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Weiss comes into the picture all of a sudden, like after your appearance, and then like writes that article. Shit's really sketchy, dude. Peter Thiel. The whole thing is extremely. Well, guess sketchy. what? None of it worked because Joe Rogan stuck with my talking point. Nice. I won in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and guess who lost? The million and fucking Iraqis who died. And and how dare Sam Harris be such a disgusting revisionist, right? An, an apologist for the empire um, to do that shit, to just go out of his way to like make apologies for the barbarism of the United States government in Iraq and actually be like, no, this is totally unfounded and then just go off about like sectarian conflict and stuff and how is Iraqis killing each other. It's just like, shut the fuck up, dude. Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It's it's sad. Um, Do you want to quickly give our react to the, to the um, Derek Chauvin trial? Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to get your quick reaction to it. What did you think about the verdict? I mean, I thought it was extremely surprising. It's really fascinating, actually, to see... Because remember at the very beginning of all this, when George Floyd, the video came out? Almost all the right wing was admitting how horrible it was. Mm -hmm. Police shouldn't do this. They need to learn better training. They weren't weren't saying defund the police and things like BLM was, but they were Mm -hmm. fully acknowledging the the horrific display on that video. Mm -hmm. Even when the autopsy report claimed that fentanyl was the cause for his death... Not even all the right wing jumped on that. It was still almost like the fringy, like OAN people. But then when the trial starts up, it's just full bore. The the defense, you know, everything about the defense, we're going to blast out in the news as if this is like the truth. So like you just saw Fox News and all the right wing media just supporting the defense uh, lawyer for Chauvin. And it's like, but you guys a year ago were acting like Chauvin was obviously really did something really awful. You know why? Well, I, I mean, what do you think? I, I would have zero. I mean, because of the Black Lives Matter protests. And they all just, the riots. Yeah, like they just think that's now synonymous with now debunking the origin, like the, the spark that ignited all of the protests. They're just like, okay, well, now we yeah. have to just knee-jerk defend like Chauvin, I I guess. think you're right, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because it's like the almost the entire right wing now uses the 
you know, the buildings that were set on fire during some of these BLM protests where the people ended up rioting, you know, not as part of the protests. I mean, most cases, and this is remains to be true, the overwhelming majority of Black Lives Matter protests have been peaceful in the sense that when I say peaceful, they haven't burnt anything. The protesters didn't break mm-hmm. any windows or things like that. That's actually the minority of these events. And it's something like something like below 4% or 7% or something. So it's just fascinating that enough stores and buildings get set on fire and that's all they need. It's just like, it really is, Abby, just like 10 years ago when it's like enough surveillance camera video came out of like black teens like randomly punching people out as they walk by on the street. Like after like the third video, that's all they needed to be like, this is going to happen to you if you're white and you're walking in a black neighborhood, be careful. Like that's all it took. So it's Mm -hmm. like they can represent the entire black community as being people who are ready to play the knockout game on you as you're walking through, you know, downtown Oakland. Even though we saw videos of what clearly appeared to be like undercover police officers, like especially that one, I forget where it was, Minnesota or something, where he was literally just breaking all of the windows. The and Firestone Tire Store? Yeah. Yeah. And then the guy was just like, who the fuck are you? And it was like chasing him. And it was just so obviously a cop. That's. It was like, it did not look like just some black block guy. It well, was here's like the thing. totally suspicious. <laughs> so, I, just... I mean, how many instances were there like that? And I don't want to be disparaging of people who are self-identified anarchists or people who have practiced black block. But sometimes when I do see some of that stuff, it is hard to tell if it's a cop or someone who's actually just doing that as part of black block. And for example, there was an anarchist Twitter account that was, I think, rightfully being dragged yesterday on Twitter by a bunch of leftists because it was like, here's here was our action from yesterday our like our anarchist like blm action and it showed a picture of like a bus stop with all the windows broken what and i honestly thought the account is either a cop it's fake it's a right winger or it's just like a left or like a one of these black block or anarchist protesters who's like groomed by tactics that like cops and feds have inserted into the movement to like make people do stupid shit i mean it was the it was just one of the weirdest things i'd ever seen Like, I've never seen someone break a bus stop. Yeah, it's like going and breaking all the windows in, like, a post office or something. It's like, why? Or, like, a fucking Planned Parenthood building or something. Like, why? But back to George Floyd. I mean, I was very shocked at the unanimous verdict uh, to find Derek Chauvin guilty on all counts. I thought that that was really, really incredible, you know? But at the same time, it's like, how many hundreds of black people are killed every year or just people in general unarmed people are killed by police officers and like this is not justice you know this is not justice at all this is simply accountability for one killer cop who's responsible for several other murders like personally has murdered several people so rotten jail rotten hell you fucking need to be wiped off the streets and never roam free again Um, But that's just one person, you know, it's like great that one killer cop was locked away or is going to be locked away. Great. But what about all the other fucking cops? Like, look, just in the last month, Mm -hmm. look at just in the last month in Minnesota, in the same basically town, uh, Dante Wright, another 20 year old black man fatally shot by police right in the chest. He was on the phone with his mom right when he, you know, was pulled over for a routine stop because I guess his plates were expired or something like that. And then he had a worn out and then, and then just all of a sudden he's just shot and dead. Just so we don't, you know, gloss over yeah. it. He, it seemed like he was 
driving away and they yes. meant to shot him with a taser. They, that's, that's what, what they the claim, woman claims. Which is, that's what the woman claims. Which is really similar her, to the though. same claim that um, Johannes Meserly made against in the Oscar Grant shooting, which is which was even more unbelievable then because he was on his stomach, like like cuffed, I think, already when they did it. This, I mean, but it doesn't make sense in any way you slice it. Like, did you even see that Pat Robertson clip where he was mm-hmm. like holding a taser and a gun and he was explaining to his guests how like any person could tell the difference between like the way these feel and like how could the cop have accidentally... No, yeah, it's totally fake. No, I don't believe that yeah. she thought she was holding her taser at all. Um, And... Then you have Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old boy in Chicago who was killed. It was just absolutely shocking. I mean, 13 years old. He's a child, and his hands were raised. He was completely unarmed. Apparently, earlier he had a gun. He's walking around the fucking streets of Chicago in the middle of the night. Like, I mean, yeah, shit's really crazy there, you know? The point is that he wasn't armed, and cops just shot him dead and then, like, lied about it. And then they had to admit that he didn't have a gun when the video came out. And it was very clear that he was just standing there with his hands up. So, and then you have someone like Mrs. Nancy Kente Cloth Pelosi coming out and saying, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Jesus um, Christ. That's so, yeah, I remember seeing people's reaction to that. It's so, I don't know how much I have to say about this, but yeah, it's, no, just, I mean, it's just fucking crazy. I mean, it's just crazy to sacrifice his life. It's sacrifice nuts. his life? He was murdered. He was murdered. It's just unreal how out of fucking touch these people are. You know, and then the, like you were saying in the last episode, which I thought was really, really on point about this superficial wokeness that Democrats have adopted is actually the continuation of the legacy of like racist uh, settler colonialism. Yeah. It's like, no, it is. It's like, it's just so vacuous and so insulting and actually racist. And you know what? It also, I think here is the biggest danger too. It's like everybody's really misconstruing and misunderstanding why corporations are now taking on this sort of woke ret- ret- rhetoric. And I think it just ultimately gives corporations more power to, treat their employees more strictly like if they act not in accordance with their rules of conduct you know then they can now use some kind of pc like corporatized version of pc political correctness to fire someone now in a way that perhaps they weren't able to do before because employees still have you know leverage like you you can fire anyone at will like in california but it's still not as easy as you think like companies are very careful sometimes about how they fire people. Laying off people is much easier than straight up firing an employee in, in California, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right about their posturing of how they, you know, it is, it's, it's a superficial, uh, yeah, like racial solidarity thing. And I do think Obama becoming president allowed the Democrats after him to adopt that, you know, Obama, maybe he fooled some people on the left or people in society, American society in general, because he was black. And, you know, he was able to talk in a way that sounded authentic at times. He felt, you know, his rhetoric was really good. It was mm-hmm. it was high quality rhetoric, you know, it was high quality propaganda. The Democrats after him, they're pushing the same rhetoric, but they're not as good at it. And it just comes off as like way more phony. And yeah, it's just it just automatically gives them some kind of more of a um 
you know, what does, you know, a really woke acting person in real life gain from acting like that in social situations? Well, it makes them feel more powerful and like they're able to, you know, control other people. And that ultimately why the Biden administration is, you know, fully leaning into that. I think well, that it's, it, it's, it's almost the same as like what we were talking about base nectar, you yeah. know, and during like no, the Me is. Too stuff, when you posture as a feminist, specifically, you have more of an inroad mm-hmm. to manipulate people because they think that you're on their side. The GOP is just like, they don't care. You know, they're openly bigoted and, and racist and, um, and all of that. And like, at least you understand where they stand, you know, and, and you can read them well. But yeah, the Democrats, the constant pandering to like minority groups and stuff like that is just so insulting um, because it's just so fucking fake and it's just all about like corporate branding. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say about the George Floyd stuff is that just to show you how close this community is in Minnesota, George Floyd's girlfriend at, at one time was Dante Wright's teacher. Wright's aunt said at a press conference, unbelievable. Um, you know, there's all those statistics about like, I don't, I, I forget if it was Minnesota or not, but it was just like the amount of black people that were pulled over for like traffic violations and stuff, like compared to how many black people lived in the town. It was just like so obviously racist, like motivated by racism, you know, mm-hmm. it's just unreal. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is not justice. This is accountability for one cop and all killer cops need to be in jail. A lot of pressure was on the jury to do the right thing. I don't think that it's going to stop. Um, And I don't think that Black Lives Matter is going to just go away because, you know, Derek Chauvin is found rightfully guilty. No, it's this is this is a movement that has just like the Me Too movement, but on a much greater scale, regardless of what kind of knee jerk reaction you have as a, you know, edgelord post leftist or whatever, who thinks that, oh, if you're you know, support Black Lives Matter, you're basically like McDonald's posting a black square or it's like you're you're part of the establishment. You know, it's like that whole mindset is really strange to me because just because the establishment superficially backs something and acts like they have solidarity with, with it doesn't mean the issue itself is like a propaganda ploy, you know? like No, they're trying to generate money. Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating for me to watch well, that's the thing. It's like our police, the establishment. It's like, wh- how do uh, this logic just falls apart? Really yeah, like quickly. our police anti-establishment. Is, I think that's what you yeah, mean, Yeah, it's just right? like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is It is really weird, to, though, to hear people on like mainstream talk radio. Like, for example, I was driving home Tuesday uh, from somewhere listening to AM radio, local KGO you know, rather milk toast politically radio. And I haven't listened to it in maybe like a year and a half. But to hear the both of the people, the hosts, talking about how the rhetoric they were using was surprising. Like they were basically saying, if a citizen sees a cop murdering someone, you know, shouldn't they be allowed to stop the cop, like physically stop the cop? And I was thinking like, wow, I've never heard like anybody on like generic talk radio talking like this. Like, so I think that it has had like a permanent lasting effect on like radicalizing people's views against the police. And that is ultimately good. This is not the same as saying, well, everybody talks about the deep state now. That's ultimately good, even if like, you know, it's not extremely accurate or how you like the deep state. It's like, no, that's not that's not actually a useful critique because it could just be applied to any political enemy. The police is a very specific group. 
That's, I mean, and they're, they are in mass trained to do horrible things and to just protect themselves and not even the public. I mean, if they were trained to protect the public, then a police would tackle someone with a knife and try to bring them to the ground, like sacrificing their own life for public safety. They wouldn't start shooting bullets at the person. You know, if, you know, if they do that, they don't know if someone else is going to get hit in the crossfire. They're always taking a risk. Yeah, that's what I meant about the Dante Wright thing. It's like, yeah, he he did. There was a skerfuffle where he was like trying to get back in the car. But it's like, that's not who knows what was going through his mind. You know, mm-hmm. it's not worth him losing his life over. It's just really sad. Yeah, it is. It is very sad. And, you know, everyone is trying to politicize every, you know, police shooting right now to a point where it's like, now the right is just latching on to every like misreported thing or like if the person had a knife, they always like glom onto that and say, well, they deserve to get shot, you know, and there's this a lot of binary thinking where it's like, well, what was the cop supposed to do but use deadly force? They had right. a knife, you know, it's like, well, why? What do the cops do in every other country? it's very odd how that's just baked in. It's almost like, well, what were we supposed to do in World War II when all the Japanese were continuing to fight us? Not drop the nuke? It's like, what? It's like, how fucking brainwashed are you to think like that? Like, that to me is just crazy that that's a normal framework that people think in in this country because they don't know any other way. They don't understand what you just said, that people in other, cops in other countries don't do this on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, American police act way crazier than police in other countries do. <laughs> like, and compared to China, you know, everyone talks about how totalitarian China is. Their cops don't do this. Have you ever seen video of cops like right. murdering this many people? Hell no. Yeah. All I saw was people out of Hong Kong being like, the cops are brutalizing us and all this shit. It's like, I actually never saw any videos of anything remotely as hideous Mm-hmm. as what police do to American citizens, like none. One instance, Abby, that the media really glommed onto here, the Western media, was a Hong Kong police officer drew his gun. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. That was the only, he drew his gun. He didn't fire it. He drew it. I right. Mean, that's the worst thing that they showed. I right. saw worse footage of the protesters hurting people in Hong Kong, like really of scary course. violence. It was... No, I saw like murders. Yeah, I saw like, a guy I actually literally... saw a guy get hit with a concrete slab and oh, like look like he got killed. That was the worst one. Like some... He was trying to clear a trash barricade made yeah. on one of the campuses. Yeah. And a, a protester just straight up like throws... Like it almost looks like that scene in Lord of the Flies where the kid gets like a boulder thrown on his head. It was it was horrifying. Um. So... Do we want to get into the biggin Afghanistan or should we touch upon this new trend of NFT tokens or is it even, I mean, I don't know shit about them. I don't either. So I don't even know. I mean, mean, yeah. All we can tell people is that somehow digital artists, um, this guy named, I want to say his name is Bleepo or something, Bloppo. He's this famous guy who's been online making Instagram like art for years and years and years. And somehow he popularized this concept that had pre-existed him of non-fungible token based digital art auctions and i don't really understand it but it uses some kind of cryptocurrency and somehow he sold some of these digital art they're just like jpeg files basically or png files i don't know what exactly format they're in uh for like six million dollars and things like that and he 
it basically started a chain reaction of people talking about this concept. It's now something that everybody knows about Saturday Night Live, did a rap parody of it. I mean, so it immediately became this like household term. And I don't think most people still understand it. I don't fully understand it. As an artist, it just seems kind of gross to me. But at the same time, like if an indie artist, you know, someone who's authentic and is a, just a good artist is trying to make money and they can make you know, a bunch of money off an auction, more power to them. I just don't understand why it's cryptocurrency based. I guess my big question is like, is this like a money laundering scheme? Because where is all this money being generated from? You know, like $6 million for a JPEG. Like I just saw that uh, obsessed girlfriend meme JPEGs sell for like millions of dollars too. And it's like, you're not actually owning these like people are still able to use the jpeg so what exactly is going on here who would pay that how are there this many people with so many millions of dollars of crypto that they are just buying these nft jpegs like unless there's some larger scheme going on that i actually don't understand well, i think you raise a very interesting point because if people look into the art world at large like the big you know the highfalutin um, you know, where hundreds of millions of dollars are exchanged, you know, I don't know, I don't know how much that industry is actually worth, but it's worth a lot. And high society elites are very engaged in it and invest in it. So to use the, the phrase money laundering, I don't think is, you know, uh, even that speculative. Of course, that's partly what's happening because all these elites money launder, or hide their investments in some way. So, to do it digitally with cryptocurrency puts a really interesting spin on that same concept. Like if this takes off in a similar way where it's like the industry becomes like worth a bunch of money, you know, then people will start investing yeah. in just the larger industry. It's like, cause there's a lot of, you know, you could make money off it. You could put some of your own money into it to like hide right. some of your assets or whatever. So right. it is, it does present a lot of interesting questions, I think. Uh, Edward Snowden just sold a print that he signed, of course, a digital JPEG of it, for $5 million. Cool, dude. Maybe Piero, Midier, and, and all of them can start auctioning off as NFTs the rest of the Snowden leaks that they're like not releasing yeah. for some reason. Open that shit back up. Invest that money back into the Snowden archives and open that shit up, dude. Mm -hmm. That was supposedly the reason that you the rest of them couldn't be released, right? Financial problems. The whole fucking thing doesn't make any sense, dude. It's so bizarre. Even like the Substack shit. Like I didn't even realize until recently. I don't think we've mentioned on this podcast yet. And that I, Substack secretly pays people advances of like a hundred grand. Yep. And what's yeah. so funny, Abby, is all of these writers, specifically Greenwald, acted like you're fucking dumb. Like this, this is not a secret. Like this isn't even news. Everybody knows, you know, they pay advances. Like, no, like I didn't you, know that. Nobody knew that. That is absolutely not true. You didn't say it. You didn't say you were basically employed. And so essentially all the talk and promotion of Substack for as good as it might be as a platform. Sure. Other than this paying advances to selected um, journalists like Michael Tracy. I don't know if he's getting paid in advance. It's weird. It seems like a, a decent platform, like Medium. You know, it's like Medium mixed with Patreon. That sounds like a good thing for indie writers or whatever to make money from. But, like, it almost really does seem like Glenn and all these people are part of a guerrilla marketing campaign. Because if they're getting paid that much money and they are talking about Substack this much and making it like a political issue, then you really have to question their motives. It's very, very, seems unethical and just kind of sketch and weird. 
I did find that article really interesting, even though it was clearly written by someone with like a vendetta who seemed more like liberal. Um, it, it They raised an interesting point, which is where I f- initially found out that people were paid advances from Substack, is that this is now an editorialized publication, essentially. Like they are curating the most famous writers on their platform and essentially becoming like a paper. And then they have like no accountability, you know, like they they're totally hands off and pretend like they're just a tool for anyone. But the fact that they select certain people to pay these advances to really does point in another direction of what they're trying to do. Yeah, and it does seem like it's more guerrilla marketing and that this was never disclosed anywhere. The only other time I've heard of a company like this doing this um, is YouTube because it came out years after, you know, they started to become like a big social media influencer with like YouTube celebrities. Came out years after that phenomenon that people sort of knew about that some of these YouTube celebrities, some of these stars had been sponsored by YouTube and sponsored meaning they were given some kind of money apart from their normal revenue that any YouTuber can make. So it'd be almost like if Patreon had selected specific people to give a salary or stipend to on top of their subscriptions. Luckily, we haven't heard about anything Patreon like that, even though Patreon has been doing sketchy deplatforming things. They don't do that as far as I know. But YouTube has, so there's a precedent for sort of a sly sponsoring of influencers kind of thing. Um, But this actually seems more political. So in a way, YouTube was probably just doing it more algorithmically, like predicting who would become famous Mm -hmm. or whatever. No, this is way more This seems more politically driven, and that's a little more sketchy. So I can understand anybody's complaints about that. I mean, it it is sort of odd. Yeah, one last thing I wanted to say that being sold as an NFT, Army Hammer, you know, the guy who sent those weird cannibal text messages to someone. Those DMs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those DMs are now being sold as NFT art. It's just such a interesting illustration of where we're at in society, you know? It is. Weird digital artwork backed by like money laundering crypto mm-hmm. sold for tens of millions of dollars. That's a JPEG that has no copyright protections at all and then like we're in a failed state it's just like what is going on you know like no health care in the middle of a pandemic millions of homeless people but like this shit's happening like it's just like parallel universes it by is. the way there's fucking yard work going on like outside my house and it's i'm so sorry this whole podcast you're gonna probably hear like a weed whacker I don't okay. care. People, well, I don't think you're going to be able to take the we, sound out. I, I'm yeah. just going to give myself a little pat on the back, a little toot of my own horn right now and say that I, from other podcasts I've heard, we still have pretty good audio quality even when we fuck yeah. up a little bit compared to other people's podcasts. So, yeah. I'm not no, we work really hard on the quality <laughs> of this shit, dude. Really fucking hard. I fucking, we fucking do so much shit, dude. Um, but yeah, isn't it just like a weird scene? It's very weird. And as you're talking about it, I'm thinking of ways that I could sort of see how I would back the concept of like unique digital art if it was done in a specific way. But ultimately, it just seems to make more sense like with what, like how Wu Tang Clan did it, where they just sold a very deluxe single version of their album, which was like the only place you can get it, it was one copy mm-hmm. on CD or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that better. I, the idea of unique digital art the only way i could see it working is if like 
you basically made someone sign a contract saying that if they distribute it, they're breaking the law. Right. So that, that's the thing. It's not unique. Yeah. So it would have to be, it would have to specifically limit you. You cannot spread this on the internet. So it's, you are the only one who gets it. The only way it would be unique is if all you knew you were betting on was like a thumbnail preview version of like a very high resolution digital version. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That only you That's get. That's what makes no sense. It doesn't That's make any sense. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. That's literally the only way I can picture it making sense. And even that's like, well, then what's, that's not really that cool. And, you know, the only physical objects I've actually seen of what this is, Abby, I don't know if you've seen these. They're like little, they almost look like digital picture frames that loop, like a video or a, <laughs> what? or just like display the image. Yeah, they sell, you can buy physical versions of some of these NFTs if the auction winner. The fuck is going on <laughs> jesus christ dude forgot to mention that peter thiel uh we're talking about cryptocurrency he's going around putting out this new talking point that has actually sort of taken float recently that bitcoin and cryptocurrency is some kind of chinese geopolitical plot to like tank the petrodollar or like the u.s government or economy um good and i hope that's true one interesting thing uh, that he's sort of riding on with that talking point. Like he's not, it's not out of a vacuum. He's sort of piggybacking off of the news that's also come out recently because Bitcoin is like now worth like 60 grand for one Bitcoin, which is crazy. He is piggybacking off the fact that a lot of these Bitcoin mining operations, which are just like server farms, computer servers are in mm -hmm. China. I think something like 30% of them. That's probably how that talking point is floating. It's like, well, Chicom Bitcoin. Yeah. If there's a Chinese footprint on anything these days that's bad, that's what's going to be talked about. We're never going to talk about like America or anybody like doing bad things anywhere. It's always just going to be China. You know, pollution, uh, cryptocurrency yeah, right. causing pollution. That's China's fault, not our fault. Yeah. Even anymore. though American corporations are the ones using China exactly to do that, it's, it's disgusting. Well, they, I mean, then, then the new angle, the Stoller angle, though, is that like they inject the most capital. So, like, they're like, if they have the most capital, then they're like, um, then everybody who has money in China is like working for the Chinese government. Like, every, every oligarch or like company, that's the whole, that's like the new spin to like try to get the left to get messed up on China in their heads. How is that different than what American capitalists, though? Uh, because it just like shifts our focus. Because if you make it seem like it's almost kind of the same as saying like, what about Ar Iranian imperialism? What about Russian imperialism? <laughs> you don't care about that. It's like if you can make people think that China has the most leverage on like Wall Street, which Stoller, Matt right, Stoller right, has been right. trying to push, then it makes people like the financial watch people on the left, like get, you know, starts to kind of infect their brains a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's a powerful talking point actually to shift us over to you know, worrying about China. Nice little Bannon talking point there. very much so very much so bannon talking point that's absolutely right because he went after uh, uh what is it da davos the davos yeah, crowd right. for doing this yep. yep yep their embrace of xi jinping mm -hmm. and how that shows that uh china is just in bed with wall street and davos and they all love exactly him. let's get into the big end let's get into the doozy rob yeah. can you believe it the forever war coming to an end Longest war in American history, period. Yep. Uh, Vietnam pales in comparison to the 20-year boondockle. We've officially we've, been uh, occupying for 20 years, and we've been involved on and off in different capacities, like for the previous, you know, 
20 years before that. So 78, 78 was yeah. when that whole dirty war started. The covert war, the outright war and the occupation last 40 years, you know, to completely destroy and eviscerate uh, any hope, any potential for any positive future for this country. Yeah. So so Biden uh, maybe surprised a lot of people when he came out and announced that he was going along with Trump's plan. The Doha conference, uh, the peace deal with the Taliban that Trump had been trying to deliberate and finalize that actually was initiated back during the Obama administration. This has been attempted for the better half of the last decade. Um, but uh, as we know, Trump was the one who, you know, pushed that forward. And what's interesting about Trump, though, doing it is that he purposefully didn't set the withdrawal deadline and finalize the deal until he was out of office. And that's the dangerous part about every administration kicking the can down to the next one, because when you leave troops, the subsequent administration can just easily escalate the war. Of course. So indeed. I thought it was just a total bait and switch that Trump could have easily withdrawn all the troops, you know? He could have easily done that. That's what his executive power gave him. Well, that, but he that's... purposefully left the troops there until Biden was in office. Yeah, he did. And I have a little bit more of a slightly different view than I did like when Trump announced this, um, you know, I don't know, six months ago. Um, my view on it now is that just like all presidents who have announced withdrawal, you know, there probably was some element and I'm, I'm, I buy into this a little bit more now that there were generals and people in the Pentagon trying to box him in, just like they tried to box Obama in, you know, just like they've, they try to do this to any administration. But at the same time, if you're, you know, if you're as a president, you have the authority, like you said. So mm -hmm. if you're, if this is a serious issue to you and it's important to you, you will fight tooth and nail against that attempt to box you in. Instead, Trump just basically like all these other things he didn't follow through on. He just wanted to throw out the rhetoric, get the credit for it, and then like sort of act like he was getting boxed in and that's why he couldn't do it. I mean, and that's essentially the, what like that's, I, I think that's kind of what happened um, is that he just really was not that committed to it. I of mean, of course not. He, you know, on some level, I do think he probably did want to do it. I mean, no, I, he wanted the optics of having the deal, just like he wanted the optics sure. of having normalized relations with Kim Jong-un, but he didn't care enough to actually follow through to make that happen yeah. on both accounts. And I think that he probably saw it more from the perspective of it's not, po you know, Afghanistan is not popular anymore. Like everyone would be relieved if we end this. Yeah. So like, that's the way he sees it. It's like the trial balloon sort of business minded, you know, weird uh, Trump optics thing. So yeah, I mean, in terms of his level of commitment, his seriousness, it, it was obviously not there. Um, and even Justin Amash, remember he came out and, and sort of pushed yep. back against that idea that because the Pentagon was lying about the troop counts in Afghanistan, that like that's how they pulled the wool over Trump's eyes. Well, that was Syria. But yeah, no, the, oh, there was oh, a shell right. game oh, going. Oh, you're right. Oh, totally. There was a shell game going on in Afghanistan too, where I, yeah. basically like a month ago, we found out that there was a thousand more troops than, than we previously thought. And then the 18,000 yeah. contractors that Trump pretty much added all himself like there was like yeah. 3,000 contractors or something when Obama left well, we're gonna Trump get to that yeah totally fucking added all these contractors but Justin Amash corrected what you're thinking of is that Glenn Greenwald wrote an article for The Intercept talking about how Liz Cheney and this is true that Liz Cheney uh was trying to derail the NDAA by basically 
saying that um, the troops shouldn't be withdrawn from Afghanistan or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it certainly had nothing to do with Trump having the ability to remove the troops. And Glenn Greenwald kept coming out with this narrative and trying to basically prove that Trump wanted to do this, but he was blocked by House Democrats and Liz Cheney. And they forced his hand to prevent him from removing the troops. And Justin Amash, very principled anti-war libertarian, had to come out and actually personally correct Glenn Greenwald. But what's so weird, Robbie, is that he kept doing it. He kept doing it. I've actually seen Greenwald just do this like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, wait, like Justin Amash corrected you. Why are you still running cover for Trump? But – well, he's um, even said gone yeah, as far no. now. I mean, he's totally off the rails to the point where he says like Bannon and Tucker Carlson are socialists and that like, and then it was all Jared Kushner's fault of like everything that went wrong in the administration. That's like oh, his you don't newest believe, iteration. You don't, believe that, you don't believe that Tucker Carlson's a socialist? Actually, now, now that you, you tell me that, yeah, I kind of am convinced <laughs> he's a socialist. I did want to mention really quickly because just let's, let's just jump to this really quick because I feel like it's important that it does seem like all of a sudden the GOP is allowing people to, or they want people to talk about the officer Sicknick, like autopsy report not being, you know, accurate. But -hmm. like nobody's talking about the Capitol Police stand down still. And I find that very bizarre. It's like, why is that narrative being talked all over right-wing media? But like the idea that the police stood down not still not being talked about. Because that doesn't help the right wing. It's strange. I mean, it's definitely a notable difference, you know. Just like we'll talk about the notable difference between how the media is now treating Biden's withdrawal plans versus how they treated Trump's, you know, rhetoric on that, which is also pretty bizarre. This month, Biden made the major announcement to withdraw 3,500 U.S. military personnel from Afghanistan with 7,000 NATO soldiers expected to follow suit. Now, as I mentioned before, Trump had set the previous deadline for May. Um And Biden is now extending this withdrawal deadline four months, four and a half months to 9-11. So he wants this weird political theater of doing a quote unquote full withdrawal of military personnel on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which, as we know, is the same event that the empire used to just justify its uh, initial criminal invasion and occupation of the country. It's super bizarre. It makes no sense. And the Taliban is fucking pissed, as well they should be. And they even promised a mass casualty event if this withdrawal deadline was extended. Um, Biden claims the withdrawal is not based on any conditions on the ground, meaning if there is a huge attack, he's claiming it will have no impact on whether or not they pull military personnel. They're actually deploying troops. This is quite ironic. They're actually deploying hundreds more troops to help with the withdrawal. It could be a bait and switch where they could justify if there is an attack, they can just say, um, well, they broke the deal and now we have to stay. But because they've iterated the fact that it's not based on any conditions on the ground, including an attack by the Taliban, I'm not sure. It just sounds way too good to be true. But what we do know is that Jen Psaki basically admitted that they expect the Taliban to take over the full the full country. Taliban has gained more territory than ever before, and um, they fully expect that the Taliban will regain control of the country. And uh, that's pretty wild stuff. That's pretty wild stuff. It's pretty wild stuff. And it's also, they basically seem like they're almost setting Afghanistan up to be the same 
thing is Iraq. I don't think it's going to be ISIS this time that's going to make videos, but like all it's going to take is like one video of like someone that looks like Taliban, like marching a bunch of like the allied Afghani governments, you know, people to their death or something like after we leave for us to be like, we need to go back. You know, it's, it's going to be that same scenario. I think there's definitely, they're going to use the vacuum or the perceived vacuum of troops leaving to like as an excuse to, and then violence happening as an excuse to continue to occupy and send more troops in. I mean, that's kind of, I think they're what they're setting up for just seems kind of inevitable that there's going to be a, a, a push for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, But I mean, it is really gross that they're moving it to be the anniversary of September 11th, the withdrawal date. I mean, it does just give them more time for something to flare up and as an excuse to stay, even though Biden is claiming that it's, it's unconditional. Um, you know, we have to go based on what the rhetoric has been before. I mean, the Obama administration originally said that they were going to withdraw all the troops by 2014, you know, and here we are seven years later and that's war is still going on. Um, so I think it's just the extended time is just to give them more wiggle room, um, to decide what they're going to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, just the symbolism of the date is just to remind everybody that Afghanistan was supposed to be, you know, re- a just retaliation for the nine 11 attacks, even though, uh, we, as we've long talked about the base rationale for the war itself in Afghanistan makes zero sense. It makes just as little sense as going to war in Iraq. So, I mean, do you want to just mind if I just go through the reasons why we said we invaded? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I want to just add something to what you just said about Obama. But what I find really interesting is that if you really look at the withdrawal timetable over the last three administrations, it has been a slow retreat. Very obvious, yeah, that it's gone in like a wave. It's like goes up a little bit. They always do a little surge and then they bring the troops down lower than they were before. They go up a little bit, then they do a little, you know, they come down. So it's been sort of this up and down, but the curve has been going down and down in terms of the troop amounts. Which is, yeah, which is really interesting because I think that for the last 10 years, they knew that they couldn't defeat the Taliban. They knew that their objective to crush the Taliban and create a complete puppet regime that then they can extract the mineral wealth and totally control everything else. They knew for a, they've known for a long time that that hasn't been able to happen and they would never be able to succeed in that objective. And so you have to ask yourself, like, how long were they really going to keep up this facade? I mean, and just perpetually occupy occupy the country when all of the bases and all of the soldiers have been under constant bombardment and attack by Taliban resistance fighters. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it seems like there has been some sort of sea change in the military establishment to just be like, look, like we need to re-strategize our, our uh, policy here and fold Afghanistan into the larger war on terror and maybe just you know, have this PR disaster finally end, um, especially with the Asia pivot and Blinken reasserting even in Afghanistan last week that they want to refocus on the domination of China and challenging China. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And um, and also just the fact that they claim that the 3,500 troops that they're removing are just going to be repositioned to neighboring countries in the eastern, you know, former Soviet countries, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, which 
at the same time, it's like, okay, well, now you're now you're positioning yourselves to confront Russia and China and China, Tajikistan. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like we should hold some of this before until we go to um, just because I kind of give us an opportunity to talk about all this stuff. Sure, uh, sure, sure. Sorry. But do you want to finish your thought about the board, about the neighboring countries? Do you have any more to say? No, I that? mean, and and we can get into that later, especially how China actually borders. Uh, you know, there's a hundred mile border mm-hmm. or something between China and Afghanistan, and and the significance of that. But yeah, no, that that's all the bigger picture stuff that I think. I, I think that this could be a true, true thing that's happening. Um, but but not for the reasons that Biden's saying. You know, Biden's declaring, okay, we won the war, we achieved all the objectives that we wanted to, and we're bringing the troops home. But like. All the things that aren't said, I think, is, is the most important are the most important things to focus on, and we're going to get into that and what it means for the larger war on terror. But, you know, of course, like you said, we we will never know until every troop is is out of Afghanistan, and we've heard this before. This is a tale as old as time, like yeah. Beauty and the Beast, and um, I'll uh, I'll believe it when I see it. But um, but until then, why now, and what does this all really mean? You know, why, so why delaying it? so much from the original date. Um, I mean, and also, yeah, I think that we need to also be mindful of the fact that the CIA has been heavily involved in Afghanistan the whole time, you know, ever since nine 11, at least, uh, they, and, and even the 1980s, they were the first to go into the country after nine 11, the CIA went on the ground. Uh, there was a bunch of covert operations done that way before the bombing started. And yeah, I take think us that, back. Huh? Yeah, I'll take, take us, us back. back. I mean, I think that that's so there's so many possibilities, even if they optically remove the U.S. troops like and don't have a base there, which I would be surprised if they didn't. Um, but if the, I, th- I think it's going to be they're going to find another way to just have U.S. personnel there of, of some kind. Um, and that's what my my mind kind of goes to CIA, because that was sort of the norm before that. But, yeah, let's break down why uh, the what we were told about the original reasons for invading Afghanistan. I mean, my position now is that it's totally amoral. It's unjust. Um, The Afghanistan war was based on lies and misinformation. The Bush administration sadly didn't even have to make a slam dunk case as to why we were going into Afghanistan. People were just so enraged. All they had to do is point the barrel of the American gun at any country they wanted and, you know, the American people just told them to shoot it, wherever they wanted to point. It. it didn't matter. You know, as long as they caught them in that emotional fervor, we would have, you know, American public would have gone along with any attacking anybody at that point. I think it was just that's how sad that situation was. Um, I'm not absolving the American people. It's just that's how much it emo- a 9-11 emotionally fucked people up. Um, but the AUMF is essentially on paper the rationale for Af- invading Afghanistan. Um, you know, that that was the vote, basically, to invade Afghanistan, even though there was already activity happening in Afghanistan uh, previous to this vote. So actually what's odd is on the evening of 9-11, there is uh, news reports that there's like a helicopter shooting like missiles down somewhere like in Afghanistan already. Like, was that us? Like, who who was that? Like, we still don't really know. Um, so I don't know, you know, this vote, but long term basically opened 
you know, up for the war on terror. It opened the door for what is known as the war on terror, which is just endless war. The whole world is a battlefield. And there was nothing in that uh, bill, uh, you know, that we essentially invaded Afghanistan via that said uh, why the Taliban was harboring al-Qaeda. It didn't say anything about bin Laden being behind 9-11. It didn't say anything about that. We were just sort of led to believe uh, that al-Qaeda was using Afghanistan as a training hub or a place in which they launched attacks from through the media narrative, through the Bush administration. Um, but there was never any like solid proof or vote taken or even like official document from the U.S. government saying this is why we're going to Afghanistan because of, you know, this, the, the 9-11 attacks is because of this and this. It just was just sort of, it just sort of happened, which is just kind of disturbing, I think, to think about, to think back then on how quickly that all happened and how they didn't really have to explain anything. Bin Laden was sort of, we already know he was sort of using a, a hub in Afghanistan as almost like a PR stunt for himself he hired uh, like locals to pose as his bodyguards when CNN came and interviewed him. He he presented himself and he made himself look way more powerful and influential than he was. Um, he didn't really need to be in Afghanistan. He almost did it to like make himself seem like he wasn't this rich Saudi boy from a rich Saudi family. Uh, the whole thing was just is just not the way that we were presented with you know what Bin Laden's role was what Al-Qaeda was actually doing over there. So I think, you know, the actual mastermind of 9-11, uh, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, the fact that he wasn't in Afghanistan is also something that we don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. So this idea that the 9-11 attacks were launched from Afghanistan, like that was the headquarters in which they were executed. You know, even if you buy into that official narrative that Al-Qaeda did 9-11, that's not, there is no uh, connection between the two. There's some evidence that a couple of the hijackers visited a Al-Qaeda loyal, you know, campsite in Afghanistan at one point. But there's no evidence that like Khalid Sheikh Muhammad or any of these masterminds of 9-11 launched this attack from Afghanistan. Um, we know we are, we have been led to believe that bin Laden is merely just the face and the financier of the operation. He's the PR end of it. Uh, Zawahiri is actually in control of Al-Qaeda and Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was supposed to be the guy who, you know, mapped out the 9-11 attacks, apparently. So taking all these things into consideration, just the basics, it is sort of weird that we used Afghanistan, you know, that that was the somehow an obvious retaliatory country to wage war on in response to 9-11. You just mentioned the AUMF, and I think this is really important to understand that this was the framework that was presented as the solution for 9-11 to essentially give us carte blanche to wage war uh-huh. anywhere on the planet um, to root out terrorists wherever they reside or are harbored literally anywhere. Like the entire world is a battle zone for the empire at that point. And there was only one person who voted no, Barbara Lee. And she was actually sent death threats and she was convinced that she was going to get voted out uh, because of her stance her courageous stance on voting no on that. And how disgusting is it that she was the only no vote to a blank check for the military industrial complex? It's like, I don't give a fuck how affected you were by 9-11. Like that is the most destructive piece of legislation. And the fact that it's just been not, it has not been repealed yet. And the AOMF is now just justified to to bomb all of these countries around the world, all of the drone strikes, all of the special operations, now AFRICOM and Africa, it's uh, 
It's unreal. And what it's do we really, really crazy? And what what what? Where well, there's a precedent for this too? It's like Syria and Iraq, or Syria specifically. We do a lot of not you know pushing U.S. troops into areas. We do a lot of more proxy forces that we support, push them into cer- certain areas, and then give them air cover with our military. That's sometimes how the our military and those proxy forces interact. For all we know, that's how they're going to do Afghanistan as well. And well, they've know, already Lloyd Austin has already said that they're going to continue to pay Afghan security forces. Of course. So yeah. we are going to so openly pay the proxies in Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's like Iraq. It's like they like the Iraq security forces that we were paying were like doing they were doing beheadings too of people like so it's this idea that only ISIS, you know, is is crazy enough where they do beheadings and film it. That's actually not true. There's like Iraqi security forces that we were paying who were like doing crazy beheadings on video that are still out there on the internet. Yeah, and Hamid Karzai, the puppet government that they had just curiously ready to go in and be the president of Afghanistan, he was not only a former like CIA oil guy, Mm -hmm. he was like a Chevron, not executive, but like someone like a lobbyist or some shit, but he was also former Taliban. Yeah. And his brother um, was allowed to be in the in the uh, like U.S. supported government too, and he was like involved in the heroin trade. Oh, all of dude, all the Afghanistan. That's like how the Afghan government just runs their operations now. It's like yeah. total uh, heroin trade. Opium and it is stuff. odd to think that the two, some of the two longest wars that we were involved in, like, were also sort of linked together with like a heroin trade happening sort of mm-hmm. under the surface with, uh, but in Vietnam, there's actually a lot more uh, documented examples of like the U S soldiers dealing large quantities of heroin, even some of them making uh, heroin manufacturing it. Mm-hmm. Not as many examples of that with the U S well, we'll get into the drug angle in a little bit, but how funny is it that, you know, power of nightmare is probably one of the most cutting parts in the whole movie is when it shows NATO, those NATO soldiers, those British soldiers, going in and uh, saying we're going to capture and kill as many Al-Qaeda as we can. We're here to hunt down the terrorists. And then like two months later, it's like, so how many Al-Qaeda have you captured? And he's like, we haven't captured any Al-Qaeda. And she's like, how many have you killed? He's like, we haven't killed any. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> it's just like a stunning admission that it's a fa- was uh, based on a fake rationale. You, you're telling me the CIA and these intelligence people who are surveying Afghanistan with drones, which they had been doing since the mid-90s during the Clinton era, didn't know that it was like completely vacant of any of like Al Qaeda, like where'd they all go? I, that either means that there was very little of them there, like extremely little. We were we've been told, um, even by like former U.S. officials uh, have confirmed this that there was no more than one hundred Al Qaeda members worldwide around at the time of nine eleven. So how many mm-hmm. of them were supposedly in Afghanistan? Do we even have we even been told how many were supposed to be there? I mean, I right. would wager maybe less than a dozen, if any. You know, it's like. So then it became, well, you know, then part of the rationale was we're going to capture and kill bin Laden. Um, and that's why we're going into Afghanistan. That was sort of a media, part of the media narrative. Um, and this one might be the fakest one of them all because the American public was left with the general impression that Afghanistan was not just to take out the Taliban, but it was also to take out bin Laden, who we were sort of led to believe was the in charge of 9-11. The Taliban repeatedly offered to give up bin Laden to the United States if the United States provided evidence for his role in the 9-11 attacks. We already have seen that press conference that you so 
beautifully used in your little Empire Files segment uh, where the, the Taliban spokesperson says, not without evidence. We'll give mm-hmm. up bin Laden, but you have to provide evidence. Um, most people don't even know that that interchange occurred. Now, Bush's response was, we don't negotiate with this you know, terrorist regime, essentially. But the crazy part is the Taliban continued to make this offer two weeks after the U.S. started bombing them. So you could say, well, yeah, oh, fuck the Taliban. They were just like putting out this fake offer because they knew the U.S. was about to bomb them anyways or whatever. But like this was after we started bombing them. So it almost makes it more believable in the sense that like we were already dropping bombs on the people in the Taliban government and they were still trying to basically do a detente. Yeah, they were just like, why are you doing this? You can have bin Laden. That's not the point. And there was even a really amazing press conference that we put in our Afghanistan documentary of a Taliban spokesperson in Washington, D.C., just saying like, he's like, none of this makes any sense. He's like, first you guys call us freedom fighters, then you bomb us. He's like, it seems, and that now you're using us Mm -hmm. as a reason to just invade our country. And he was like, it seems like the U.S. just always wants a boogeyman. Yeah. It's very eloquently put. And also going back to Barbara Lee for a second, as, as admirable as that vote was, if you watch the speech that she gives on the floor, I don't even think she mentions Afghanistan. I mean, she, if she does, it's not the focal point for her not voting for it. And, you know, what's really sad, Abby, is I don't think anybody stood up in, like, stood up loudly to resist going into Afghanistan and bombing it. I don't think any politician at that time had, like, took that stance. And, you know, other than anti-war activists, like, around the country who did like marches and protests because there were, were big anti-Afghanistan war protests. People don't remember mm-hmm. that. Um, there was very little resistance rhetorically from anybody. I mean, it was, it was kind of shocking how it was just like, no, it was like, you know, it, this war was completely accepted. Seemingly. Well, it was just, it, it really speaks to the bloodthirsty nature of Americans wanting someone to blame their vendetta on like they needed retribution for 9-11 and they didn't care what it Mm -hmm. was like you said you could point a gun anywhere in the world and they would just say shoot yeah um it was such a heightened state and we even found like time magazines and all of these um publications from the weeks and months following 9-11 and it was legitimately terrifying the level of propaganda being pumped out in general i mean saying that chemical weapons were next and that everyone needed to buy like hazmat suits and duct tape their windows and john ashcroft saying duct tape your windows and then the anthrax stuff and it was it was a lot you know it was a lot and the fact that everyone just looked at the bush administration saying we need to invade and occupy afghanistan it made no sense and it's just really sad that that's where we were at that it was like okay just bomb this poor country into oblivion without needing any evidence or proof whatsoever that this country had anything to do with the attacks. It just didn't matter. Yeah, it's um, it's very, very sad the more that I think about it. And I do think that part of the reason why there wasn't more resistance to the, the, the Afghanistan war in general is that on some level, I don't think the American people like see the Afghanistan people as like human beings. I was just going to say it's, it's driven by racism, which is really sad. And, and even more than that, like, believe it or not, like, there's a lot of people in Afghanistan who look Caucasian. Like, that, I don't even think most people know that. Like, there's a, there's kind of a mixture of 
people and like their skin color in Afghanistan. There's there's people who look like people in Iran that are sort of like Caucasian looking. So it's I almost think I mean yeah racism obviously just general dehumanization yeah. of just the dehumanization other of like yeah. people who like are quote unquote not civilized like right, they live exactly. in ways that people live like some of them you know like 150 years ago according to like our standards of what's modern so exactly exactly that, that really presents an issue there where it's like wow like that's makes it much harder for people to even care you know and on top of that it's like you know if we can make everybody in the united states think that all the men there hate the women and treat them like mm -hmm. slaves and mm -hmm. all that stuff then it's like it's more dehumanizing you know then the only really human people in that equation are the women in Afghanistan who are being... And they're still using them as bargaining totally. chips to stay. Um, but yeah, even looking back at the propaganda that was used, there's a clip talking about bin Laden's intricate caves, mm. cave dwellings, which is just like, bin Laden was a rich Saudi dude. You yeah. know, like what, he was a million, multi-millionaire. You think he lived in a fucking cave underground? Like yeah, what, so what kind many, of shit is this? And there's so many Middle Eastern countries he could operate in. Why would he operate in the caves of <laughs> Afghanistan where it's like you would have the construction uh, in engineering to build anything close to that little graphic that Rumsfeld shows on, on Meet the Press would be like incredible. That's like Tony Stark, like out of like a Marvel comic book, like to build like a fortress inside of like a mountain like that. It's like something Dr. Doom would have or something. It's, it's just really dumb. I guess the last thing I'll say on Bin Laden is that one to me one of the most striking things, and this is not hidden, this is not a conspiracy, this is not me, you know, speculating. This is blatantly out there in the news that the Pentagon and White House publicly announced that the mission to find and capture and kill Bin Laden, capture or kill Bin Laden, would not happen until around December 2001, two months after the initial invasion. Why? Would they announce this? Why would they give bin Laden, if he was in Afghanistan, which we don't even know 100% for sure that he was at the time, if he was there, why would we give him a two-month lead like this? That's very strange. All in all, they already publicly stated, oh, guess what? The guy who actually was behind, that we told you was behind 9-11, we're not going to worry about getting him until December. And that's just a strange thing to put out there. And I think, you know, maybe they were giving themselves an out where it's like, they were never serious about getting them and they just kind of wanted to give themselves a, something that people can look back on and say, well, they did, you know, they did announce they were going to get him, but they, you know, two months later. So he got away kind of thing. So why I don't does know. The US, why does the U.S. always want a boogeyman? Well, Robbie, yeah, exactly. I'll never forget the day where I woke up and I was so happy to hear that Obama killed bin Laden himself he just strangled him until life ran out of his eyes no but when the u.s announced that bin laden was dead and everyone was just like oh my god this is crazy like bin laden's dead like wow and then all of a sudden um you know his body was thrown into the ocean according to islamic tradition so i was just really happy that they you know in this larger war on terror against basically islam and and muslims worldwide it was just really cool um, to do that in accordance with Islamic tradition. I mean, I, I appreciated that. I, I thought it was really woke. Yeah, that that was a was very, very interesting. Zero <laughs> Dark Thirty. That, that could be a whole other podcast to talk about how strange the killing of Osama bin Laden was. But yeah, I guess the most, the newest iteration of why we stay, why we continue to occupy Afghanistan 
we don't use the mo the um the rationale of Al Qaeda. We don't use the rationale of the 9/11 attacks anymore. We use the rationale of the Taliban. We don't we can't let the Taliban like be in charge. Even though yep. we we're, we're, we're withdrawing uh leaving them partly in charge. Like we're not you know, we're not telling them to relinquish yeah, all. Yeah, no, it's a power it's a power sharing government and yeah. and we've already admitted that they are probably going to be taking over the country and therefore we're going to be working with them. Exactly. Yeah, it's so it's very which and I'll go on in a little bit, which we have done before. And in fact, the U.S. government helped get the Taliban in power in the first place. So, yeah, that's the rationale we use now is that we're there to remove the Taliban. Well, sorry, not technically now, now, but that was the rationale we this were using was, for the like yeah. last 10 years. Yep, yep. Is that the Taliban, you know, are fighting U.S. soldiers, we're fighting against them. Yeah, so they just removed all the original reasons for, go, you know, being there. And then that's what remained. Yeah, so it became a regime change operation. Yeah, and so yeah, the U.S. people probably don't know very much about this, but we actually helped prop up the Taliban during the Clinton era, um, and essentially the Pakistani ISI and the Pakistani um, like government were behind the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan, and the CIA allegedly helped them um, the entire way through, including even giving them access to a hidden cache of weapons, um, which they used to basically overthrow the government at that time. The Taliban got to power really easily because they were had an enormous amount of weapons and equipment, kind of like ISIS style. Remember how like crazy it was mm-hmm. that ISIS had like the tanks and the, all that mm-hmm, shit like mm-hmm. super fast? Like where did they get all these tanks, dude? Like how did this happen? Like that's crazy. So it's kind of had a similar, it, it has echoes of that. Um, yeah, so the Taliban seized power in 1996, but like I said, in 78, that's when the CIA started funneling billions, billions of dollars worth of weapons to the Mujahideen, which later became the Taliban. And this was actually started six months before the Soviet Union invaded. So <laughs> it was done with the clear intention, and this was actually articulated several times, that they wanted to trap the Soviet Union in a quagmire, give them their Vietnam, and draw them in, right? Draw them into Operation Cyclone in order to just create this giant quagmire, which is just ironic considering that the U.S. got itself into the same (laughs) quagmire with the same force that they created. You have scholars at the time saying the fundamentalism that emerged in Afghanistan at the time is a CIA construct because it wasn't just like Mujahideen fighters and and feudal warlords and shit that were coalescing in Afghanistan that were Afghan nationals. This was like 35,000 radicals from 40 different countries came to join this fight in the 80s. Um, and And we all know why, because there was a like socialist revolution. It was called the SAR revolution. And even CIA internal documents at the time, as they were funneling billions of dollars to fund the Mujahideen, this reactionary feudal force, they admitted that there were so many things done that advanced women's rights, basically redistributing land, like opening education, doing a lot of reforms that helped women and children and made things way more accessible for poor people and peasants in Afghanistan. And it's just disgusting to actually use women now after the CIA purposefully used an anti-women reactionary force as 
a, you know, as a counterweight to the Soviet Union and did not give a fuck about the consequences of that when women were actually achieving a lot of gains and advancements and Kabul was actually a really thriving, cool city. If you look back at some of these photos of what could have been, what could have been. And it's yeah, of course, weird. there were a lot of contradictions of the Soviet Union and whatever. I mean, I'm not going to get into that. But the point is that the U.S. did this. And this was the intent of the entire funding of this force. And so it's just absolutely dumbfounding that $2 trillion spent, you know, the hundreds of thousands of lives lost. And that I think that's an underestimate, as we'll get into, like the true cost and legacy of this war for Afghans. It's like incomprehensible. But it's like... Here we are 40 years later using women's rights, you know, like, like yeah. what an a, what an a historical nonsense. Yeah. And this also ties into how we're now we're using like, um, Muslim, you know, we're sort of hoisting up Muslims to go after China. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. This all sort of ties together and it definitely gives us a geostrategic, really interesting position against Russia and China. And I think that that's something that people, maybe a lot of people who try to pay attention to this stuff don't really consider when looking at all this. You know, they've sort of looked at it like, oh, it's the opiums, the poppies, the rare earth minerals. That's why we're we're there occupying it. Obviously, that stuff plays a big role. But I think just the geostrategic position of the fact that it actually shares a border. Part of, like you said earlier, there's a hundred mile border that Afghanistan shares with China. And somehow, you know, some weird roundabout way that also ties into what China's doing with the Uyghurs right now. And it's all, it's very strange. You can't separate the two completely from each other, I, I think, when you look at this all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that China definitely amped up their own version of the war on terror uh, to stop extremists in the region near the border, across the border as a direct response to our occupation of Afghanistan, that it seems like the timing completely lines up with that. Now, there was this, you know, really big attack, according to, you know, China that happened in 2013 in Tiananmen Square, where a car just killed a bunch of people and ran over a bunch of people. Apparently, at the time, the U.S. didn't dispute that, like, Uyghur extremists apparently were behind this attack. Now, what's kind of interesting here is that there was an actual group that took credit for this car attack in Tiananmen Square called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, the ETIM. Now, right before Trump left office, Mike Pompeo took this group off of the U.S. terrorist list. And what was odd is we had it on our like terrorist group list for like many, many years. And China obviously treats this group like terrorists as well. But Mike Pompeo, in his like little statement removing it from that designation, said that like they don't exist. Well, then, okay, if they don't exist, so then you, during your entire tenure in the Trump administration, you lied about this group being terrorist. Like that's what it basically means. If what he's saying is the true version of the story mm -hmm. <laughs> in his statement, which is which is bizarre, and this gets really convoluted. But I think that there's definitely something happening here where it does seem like, on some level, the U.S maybe even has baited China into having this extreme reaction to what's happening. And I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't, I'm not going to apologize at all for what China is doing to the Uyghurs, but it does make me sort of wonder if China did amp up their own version of this, you know, sort of costly quagmire-ish, 
you know, not like what Russia did in Afghanistan, but sort of a little tiny flavor of that with like their own version of the war on terror uh, that, that America like wanted to happen. You know, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like very long view, but it, it, I just sort of wonder sometimes how much we're benefiting now from China being the focus of mistreatment of Muslims. Well, it is interesting. It does sort of absolve the U.S. of that. Yeah. It, it opens that door where it's like, well, what if China then sends troops into Afghanistan? And actually, apparently they've said that they might consider doing that after we leave. So that's also interesting because if China goes in there, then that'll be a really easy reason for us to stay. Like, we'll be like, well, if China's there, then we, we should stay. You know, like we should keep troops there too. Can't let them, to you know, occupy it. So it's it's odd when you really break that all down. And also the One Belt, One Road initiative where the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan stands in the way of a very long, decades-long plan of this Chinese economic trade route New that they wanted Silk to set Road. up. Yeah, that cannot be ignored either. So I, I do think we really have to look at Afghanistan as a potential way to just sort of assert our dominance over that region against Russia and China and show them that, you know, we can invade a country and occupy it right next to you, even right on your border, and you're not going to do a goddamn thing about it. And, and we would do something about it if China did that to us, is basically the point I'm making. So Yeah, if China was just in Mexico or something. I mean, yeah. I, we were wrong. It's it's less than 50 miles long. So it's actually oh, okay, half okay, the sorry. distance that we thought before. So I, I think you're right in part. I think that there is some sort of weird just geostrategic domination going on where the U.S. just wants to flex really hard. Um, and there is a lot of speculation about what China will do now that, uh, allegedly, now that the U.S. is withdrawing. And so I was looking at like, you know, it's always interesting to see like what Bloomberg and Financial Times and all the, those publications are saying about like economically, like what does this mean for Chinese imperialism and everything? And <laughs> Um, and a lot of these publications are basically saying like, yeah, I mean, China, according to Bloomberg, is keen to prevent Afghanistan from turning into a safe haven for Uyghurs. So pollinating, you know, this cross pollination of like the, the border becoming a safe haven for jihadists and mm -hmm. the Uyghurs having, um, you know, like being radicalized in Afghanistan and vice versa and how if the Taliban takes over it could be a powder keg for China and like they would have to act in turn. They've you been know, overreacting. What will this mean? They've been overreacting mm -hmm. clearly. And I don't think there's really any, you know, defense you can make of that because what they're doing just looks optically really bad. doesn't right. matter. You know, I'm not even talking about where the truth actually lies in terms of what they're doing. The fact that there's able to be this case made against them like this and the optics just look terrible of it. Now, that being said, yeah, you do have to wonder if the U.S. was like, well, of course China will overreact to this. Like they're not, they're like they're going to have a reaction to this that's going to make us be able to look at them and be like, they're extremely anti-humanitarian. Look at what they're doing to the mm -hmm. Muslims. You know, after we've like torn up the Middle East for the last two decades, mm -hmm. it's just a really convenient sort of way that this has evolved. And who else does it benefit? Not saying Israel is behind the push to focus on China's treatment of Muslims, but it is interesting that we are not really hearing about the Palestinians as much right now. We're hearing mostly about the Uyghurs and not about Gitmo as much anymore. So I just have to ask, you know, is the U.S., how much is the U.S. and Israel benefiting from this much coverage of that? Mm -hmm. I, would, I would say a lot. And that's all I'm going to say because I can't say that they're behind that necessarily. But mm -hmm. I mean, we, we could assume that the U.S. is obviously behind a lot of the 
you know, U.S. government elements are behind mm-hmm. the media coverage on that. Mm-hmm. And I guess one really dark, cynical view is that just like Gitmo, in a sense, being some kind of show gulag for the war on terror, what if partly Afghanistan is some kind of show war? You know, other than us just posturing in the region against countries like China and Russia, what if this is so almost kind of like some kind of PR stunt in and of itself to assert our dominance as just like we will just occupy whichever country we want for whatever reason and like there is actually probably people even in the Pentagon who weren't even caring that American soldiers were just dying for nothing. What I mean by that is there had to have been people in the Pentagon who knew the truth that this was bullshit, they weren't going to kill any Al-Qaeda there, that this was eventually going to turn into a quagmire where there was just going to be the Taliban versus U.S. soldiers. That, that stuff all had to have been known about by a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So, no, they knew. Yeah, they knew for so long and they just wanted to win their <laughs> awards and get their stars on their uniforms and just keep putting soldiers as as cannon fodder and bait yeah i mean it's just it's really fucked up i mean but so is the iraq war really fucked up too of course the managing of the illegal opium trade is this one of the hidden motives for why we remain in afghanistan i think the most that that's doing is it's giving us leverage uh, for funding of proxy operations to control different groups there. But at the same time, like if they're surveilling all the phones, apparently the U.S. records every phone call that's made on cell phones in Afghanistan. So, I mean, how much do they know about, you know, the exportation of the illegal opium going to the manufacture of heroin? That's unclear. That's still a whole mysterious rabbit hole. And I've always been fascinated by that open question, like what is actually going on there? Absolutely. I mean, it. yeah, it's a really good question. I've been posing this question for a long time because unlike the Contra scandal in the 80s, you know, in the crack epidemic here, like it, it is, le- it's more opaque. It's less clear cut. We don't really have the documentation to back it up, but we all know it's happening behind the scenes just based on what we know the CIA does. Um, and you know, everyone knows that the Taliban eradicated the crop before the invasion because it's against their religion, but they have been cultivating it and using it to fight the U.S. government. Um, and U.S. soldiers are actually trained and ordered to protect the opium crops. And since the invasion, Afghanistan has become the largest open producer in the world. I think, what, 90% of the world's heroin comes from there. And we know the reach of Big Pharma. We know the reach of like you said, funding like proxy forces to manage uh, U.S. domination in the region. You know, a lot of this is money laundering. And a lot of the corruption that stems from the Afghan government and the Taliban in general is like funneled through the opium production and sales. Uh, Officially, Big Pharma buys opium from India and Turkey, like legally. In Nepal, yeah. But how is it? How is it that 90% of illegal heroin trade comes from this country, right? And and the fact that the U.S. has been occupying it for 20 years, the fact that, like you said, this is a very important point, that the NSA, it was revealed in one of the NSA documents um, that Afghanistan is one of, what, three countries or something, that, the, that all phone calls are recorded and listened to, not just the data yeah. collected. Yeah. Like, these are the actual phone calls being listened to. So how is it possible that this has been going on without tacit 
approval uh, by by this government. Yeah, it's so strange to think about too that like apparently it is true that most of the street heroin, like the black tar heroin, is coming from Mexico, like across the mm-hmm. border. Um, and that's, you know, not as much like the pure, pure heroin. I don't know where that comes from, but like, does that, does that come from the Afghanistan opium? Like, wh- like how does that, all that mm-hmm. get over there? Like, I, I, it's just so interesting to think about, yeah, how does that, how can the U.S. government not know uh, or have a line into that to the extent that like, you would think that they could significantly like stop the flow of it if they're doing if they all give that surveillance. A fuck. Yeah, if they yeah, gave if a they fuck. Gave I mean, and fuck. here you have Americans, the largest addicts to opium. I mean, there's the opioid epidemic here, the heroin epidemic. Like, all of the shit is it's just fascinating how it all ties together. We have an mm. episode of Media Roots Radio from like a year ago where I interviewed a guy, I, I can't recall his name off the top of my head, about the Tasmania opium trade where it's like legal opium is also going to Tasmania that's specifically opium made for oxycontin production that has a very high uh, content of thebane which I guess is a, a precursor to oxycontin somehow that it's easier to make there's a lot of weird things with opium poppies growing around the world for corporations that people don't even know is happening it's very mysterious you know it's it just like a shadow world um and this is even more mysterious but right. yeah um, and I'm sure, you know, and I've even heard stories, I'll just say really quickly, and it's been long enough. I don't even know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, someone I know who served in Afghanistan uh, was basically just retelling stories to me when they came back about how all they did yep. in Afghanistan was drugs the entire time. They injected drugs. Somehow the they did, soldiers just had access to like injectable drugs the whole time, opioids, ketamine, you know, Xanax, like injectable Xanax and all this stuff. And they were also constantly smoking weed because there was a lot of weed growing everywhere in Afghanistan. Um, People farmed it. Opium, people who grew opium also sometimes grew weed. And then he also told me that they would burn down some people's opium crops. Like, so there was, there's probably some kind of strategic, you know, like if maybe like someone didn't comply or to get leverage on somebody, they would allow them to keep their crop, and then other times they would make them burn it. I mean, I, I almost have heard stories of both going on, but I it, I guess just the where my mind goes with that is like, what are U.S. soldiers doing as all this opium is on fire, like when they're burning it or like burning down someone's like weed plants? They're probably just like standing downwind from it and getting like really fucked up from like the <laughs> smoke. <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying. So how many people must have yeah. been fucked up and just committing war crimes, to be honest? Oh, yeah. I mean, we already know about the hashish-eating um, trophy collecting a little sect of American soldiers who would go in the middle of the night and do uh, knock knock down people's doors, like random people's doors, and just like kill them and take trophies. Remember that? Yep. Those stories about those soldiers? Yep. Shit's really disturbing. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. Um, and, and we can't forget the military-industrial complex, which made an absolute killing off the war. I mean, every bomb dropped, every defense contractor deployed, which are paid like, I don't know, like 10 times higher than U.S. soldiers. I mean, every single tank, everything was just funneling an outrageous amount of money 
to the military industrial complex. And those people really were the big winners. Because if you look at other corporations, I mean, we didn't get the mineral wealth, right? We never had a stable puppet regime and the Taliban kept bombarding U.S. bases and it was never able to be mined. It's amazing how much they just got away with and how much money was just put in the coffers of uh, defense contractors. I mean, what? here's one thing that might be interesting. What if they... What if the do- the Taliban in the U.S. make some kind of deal, and you know other countries even get involved in this, where they actually the Taliban agrees to like, you know, help secure um, like industrial or you know like um, you know like mining projects. Well, that's and stuff. that's what like I think is going to happen. Maybe they get some of the profit. That's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, they're going to treat the Taliban the like any way. other government, and they're going to sanction them and put pressure on them in order to make them capitulate to U.S. demands, just like they were doing in yeah. the 90s. I mean, Clinton wanted the Unical pipeline, and they were working with the Taliban, but then they proved like unreliable, and it was too sketchy. That's the only way I could see it working. That I is mean, what it would have to be with their cooperation. Yes, um, and it would be really funny too if the Taliban somehow took back over Afghanistan and like heroin like flow across the world like just stopped. like dwindled. <laughs> yeah, like because we like we are too young. I don't even think like I understood like, you know, things about like the heroin trade when I was when I was that young. But like if it it would be really noticeable like if it happened now, like if if Taliban took over, like everybody would the news would be like forced to talk about it, you know? <laughs> like, right. And then it would be like, wait, so how has it been <laughs> yeah. who's been doing it the last twenty years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Well, I guess let's really quickly, and I know we've almost going two hours here. We are two hours already, but let's go through Afghanistan and during Obama's term and sort of the way he tried to, you know, manage this. So he, you know, did a surge of 30,000 troops when he, when he was running, he even talked about doing that, tried to brand Afghanistan as the quote, smart war in opposition to the Iraq war, which he called the dumb war. Uh, both, but I mean, reality, both wars were not just dumb. They were horrific, uh, you know, mass murders in, in a way. I mean, there was a single airstrike in Afghanistan that we know of as the Garani massacre that killed over a hundred civilians in a single airstrike. I don't even know of any airstrike in Iraq that did that kind of damage that's on record. It, you know, so it's like apparently from Obama's framework, it was smart to infinitely occupy a country that did absolutely nothing in the United States, simply because the media and the Bush administration had convinced everybody that Afghanistan had something to do with 9-11. Both wars were based on lies. Uh, and I think the left also never took full account for this. And uh, I think the Obama getting in, riding in on this, sort of being the smart war in contrast to Iraq, sort of helped the left, just everybody left of the spectrum, not fully account for like giving let's say manufacturing consent for this war. And I still don't even think like leftist anti-imperialists have fully like acknowledged that this war was based on lies. We always just still hear about Iraq. I just, I find that interesting. Like why is there not more talk about this war being based on fake, you know, where it's not really, where it was an unnecessary and like illegal war in the same sense. So Obama announced the Afghanistan withdrawal pretty much right when he got into office. I think I think he kind of touched on it when he got into office, but he didn't really start seriously talking about it until 2011. Now, you know, obviously looking back, it was a false promise like Gitmo that he used to sort of attract the more, you know, the left 
voters. And it worked. He got and a lot of those people to buy into that. But I mean, in reality, think about it. How do you surge 30,000 troops? It's obviously really silly to think that by surging that many troops, that somehow by the end of your term, because he was still in his first term when he did this, would be able to end the war or put it on a footing to actually withdraw all the troops. That's a quite a large number of troops to insert. A fourth or more of the troops, maybe like arguably even like a third, you know, he, he put into, in, injected it into the war. That's a crazy amount of troops that was at, occupying Afghanistan. Yeah, so Obama made a lot of promises. Like you said, he said the Afghanistan war was the, quote, smart war, which is pretty interesting because he was painted as largely an anti-war figure, yet he was trying to pivot to focus on the Afghanistan war as if it was some sort of sound policy and justifiable. You even see uh, Joe Biden tweeting out in 2014 saying, we will be out of Afghanistan by the end of 2014. And this was when... He was piggybacking on Obama saying the same thing, right? Yes. When he was vice president. Yeah, he was basically yeah. parroting what Obama was saying. You know, yeah. there are reports that said that Biden was opposed to the troop surge. But at this point, 10 years later, like, who knows if Biden even has the mental faculties to even, like, you know, put forward some original thought. Like, it, yeah. it really does oh. seem like he's just being completely puppeted by think tanks at this point. Oh, I want to jump into later how heroically portrayed his whole position on this has been in the media right now. Like, Washington Post wrote this bizarrely glowing editorial about him, like, telling, like, giving pep talks to Obama about how to resist the generals on, like, keeping the troops in Afghanistan and stuff. And I was just, like, shocked as I was reading this. Like, it was like they were trying to make him look as good as possible in every imaginable way. Like, his resistance to the war, his times where he wanted to continue the war, like, everything. It was just odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole media angle is definitely bizarre because it definitely is a tone shift um, from Trump to Biden. But there are plenty of think pieces and editorials that are totally against this and obviously freaking out that uh, the U.S. is even contemplating leaving. But yeah, I mean... Including by Eli Lake, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And Chris Hayes was trying to... Wait, what? Chris Hayes was was trying to posture like he was really sort of anti-neocon while interviewing Jennifer Rubin and got her to look really crazy. But it was just also phony from his side because it's like, dude, you your fucking network brings on like Bill Crystal all the time. Like, why are you acting yeah, like no. you're against Jennifer Rubin this hard right now? No, it's totally fake. And and there's also just like plants from the defense contractor industry into the corporate media writing editorials without even disclosing that they are from uh, weapons contractors. Like, for example, this one, Margaret O'Sullivan, who is literally on the board of directors of Raytheon, wrote an article, I'm pretty sure in the Washington Post, yeah, that um, that says it's wrong to pull troops out of Afghanistan. So you know, what is going on here? Like, this is just so insidious and crazy that this is uh, this is how the media operates, you know? Look, Obama and Biden are war criminals just for the war in Afghanistan, of course. Uh, that's when the Afghanistan papers, even though they just came out a couple of years ago, that's that was the period of time that the Afghanistan papers really focused on was the posturing to the public that all of these generals were making, knowing behind closed doors that the war was completely unwinnable and that it was just a totally a failed operation. Yeah. Um, but no one wanted to really disclose that to the public, kind of akin to Vietnam. And so they just kept lying and lying and lying, 
knowing that what it meant, which was just countless civilian deaths, uh, the continued destruction of a, of a sovereign nation. Um, and it's just a criminal, criminal thing. So it's just disgusting. And Biden needs to be held accountable for that. And so does Obama. Yeah, I wonder, though, I, you know, Vietnam, it's hard to compare it to Vietnam in that regard for me, because I don't it's like Vietnam did not seem to be specifically for some kind of like long term occupation purposes, just based on the duration of time that we spent in in uh, in Afghanistan. I just can't help but feel that there's something more to why we're there. So like, I think there's probably a microcosm happening between the generals and the soldiers and, and like sort of the Pentagon, like a certain se sector of that. But then like, who? there's so many other factors involved now, even compared to Vietnam, like the amount of uh, like CIA activity in Afghanistan, for example, like that is like really opaque to us still. We don't know. And, that, you know, and that's going to continue. Exactly. So we don't, it's They've like, already said that. and the fact that they were there first too, and you have to also sort of kind of read into, it's like, why was Obama so fixated on Afghanistan? Obviously, like that wasn't coming from his own research, you know, like to think that like Obama's like, here's, a, I'm, this is what I want to do. Like, absolutely not. He obviously got that from some kind of advisors, you know, people from think tanks. I'm guessing, based on what we know about Obama, is that it came from more the CIA side of the war on terror sort of faction in D.C., where they wanted him to focus more on drones. The whole Pakistan push that he tried to do during the election, which I don't think most people remember, he was openly talking about expanding the war on terror to Pakistan. Like, he just brought that up during the debates. And it's like, whoa, dude, you're supposed to be like the anti-war guy, and you're like just bringing in a new country? into the war on terror. So that that kind of stuff, I think, was probably like fed to him by people in the CIA. So I mean, to some degree, you know, either mm -hmm. through think tanks or directly from some people that were advising him. Or fucking Richard Clark, you know, he was like an Obama advisor during that time. Right, right. Obama said as he was leaving. So basically what happened is Jay Carney, this happened to Obama several times where Obama said and made an announcement that, that the troops were going to be gone by 2014. And then Jay Carney clarified and said that Obama had never said that all the troops would be out um, and that everyone understands what the president's policy is, which is a full transition to Afghan security lead by 2014. Obviously, that's not what Obama and Biden were saying. That's clearly different. So they changed what they were going to do. And then Obama specifically announced that he's going to leave 8,000 troops in Afghanistan. And Abby, when he left office, this is to me one of the most disturbing things about all of it. I didn't even remember Obama saying this. Maybe you do. But he mm -hmm. actually said, as he was leaving office to explain why they left 8,400 troops in Afghanistan, he says, it's in our national interest, after all the blood and treasure we have invested, that we give our Afghan partners the support to succeed. This is where Al-Qaeda is trying to regroup where ISIL is trying to expand its presence. If they succeed, they will attempt more attacks against us. I mean, it just, it sounds almost like a, a Bush, like straight out of the Bush era. Like, would right. you, if you read that without knowing that's Obama, would you, wouldn't you guess that might've been like from Dick Cheney or yeah, totally. or something? The, the blood and treasure we've invested. Yeah. It's <laughs> just disturbing to remember how fucking neocon Obama acted outwardly at times. And people still weren't phased by it. They still loved him, you know? And isn't that funny that that how many years later after we talked about the power of nightmares going in weeks after the invasion and saying there's absolutely no Al-Qaeda here at all and they were just <laughs> blowing, up, blowing up mountains 
with yeah, no like one shooting in like them. RPGs into the yeah. side of like little cliff faces, like in the snow yeah. and shit. Yeah, just destroying like ancient uh, mountain sides and stuff, like beautiful terrain, and putting like just God knows how many carcinogens in the soil, just like fucking unloading arsenal in this uh, mountainside. Yeah, so here, here you have Obama in like 2014 or whatever the fuck, 2016, I guess, because this is right when he left office saying Al Qaeda is trying to regroup. I mean, imagine actually saying that, that that long after we knew that that wasn't even a thing. It's astounding. Yeah, and fear-mongering about ISIL. Yeah, you know, Which you is go. funny, they sort of changed. Remember how originally it was ISIS and then now then it was ISIL? But then, like, mm-hmm. everybody just kept saying ISIS, so, like, that's mm-hmm. what's... St- like, nobody says mm-hmm. ISIL anymore. <laughs> right. But that's so funny. But, yeah, it's, it's just funny that that's the last thing he said, and one of the first things Trump did in office in Afghanistan was dropping a Moab at an ISIS camp, supposedly. Some kind of ISIS hub in Afghanistan. So it's like ISIS was never really there to our knowledge. I mean, we already know Al-Qaeda was really not there to begin with. It was barely there. So to say now that ISIS is sort of grouping in Afghanistan and then that's the rationale for dropping like the highest ordnance explosive short of a nuclear bomb on Afghanistan, I mean, it's quite remarkable. Oh my God. I mean, the Moab, just the name itself, the mother of all bombs is, was a really weird, sinister play on like the mother of all cities, like an Islamophobic trope to just kind of troll Muslims in general. Um, And it was the largest non-nuclear bomb ever dropped. Apparently the U.S. Army had like a couple of these in its arsenal and, and Trump dusted them off and just wanted to fucking flex, dude. And dropping this giant, massive bomb with the blast radius of one mile on a populated area. There was like 60,000 people or something that lived in this region that that the Moab was dropped. And then I don't know if it was Mad Dog Mattis or someone who was a top general at the time basically said, no, we have no idea how many people died. Um, We're not going to waste our time digging through the tunnels because they said there were like ISIS tunnels and ISIS caves to count dead bodies. That's a waste of our time. So they totally closed off access to all reporters. No one could get in and actually document the effects of the Moab blast. So pretty shocking. But yeah, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking that that happened. And of course, we all know that Brian Williams, or wait, that was the bombing of Syria, sorry. But Fareed Zakaria and all these people were like super stoked on Trump doing this. This is the second time that he apparently became president when he decided to drop a non-nuclear, the largest non-nuclear bomb on fake caves. And that's another thing. It's like, why would we believe any intel from any Trump people? All of these bloodthirsty generals that he appointed. It's like, oh, no, don't worry. It's all like like total subhuman fucking animals that oh, yeah, we blew it's up like, with this bomb. So like, who cares? You barely heard about any like civilians or people being killed during the Trump administration. I mean, it must have been true that he was able to, you know, that the Pentagon change in policy was able to prevent journalism from happening or like death counts and stuff because it, it was a strange silence. You know, not to mention the whole stand down of all these like left and anti-imperialist and libertarian media people who would typically be anti-war and screaming about a president who's a war criminal murdering civilians every day. Um, there's something else to that as well, I think. You know, the the lack of coverage about it. I think a lot of it seemed symbolic. You know, Trump obviously probably wanted to, th- to pull his dick out and like wag it around. Like that was probably part of it. But on another level, it's like, 
what kind of symbolic gesture does this sort of show the rest of the world? Who would this be for? Maybe one of our global adversaries? I mean, it is sort of strange that we would just arbitrarily drop our highest explosive ordnance short of a nuke, you know, on a country that borders China and is very close to Russia. So I think, again, we have to take that into consideration. And yeah, I would say that those countries, probably China especially, was like, holy shit, like they, this is like a really extreme gesture that the U.S. is making, like blowing up a Moab, you know, right across our border. It's, it, it does, you know, it does raise a lot of questions in that regard, I think. I mean, it was definitely him whipping his dick out in the most horrifying way. And we can't forget that Trump came in and nearly doubled the amount of troops. You know what we're saying about the danger of leaving troops? Like, here's Trump campaigning on ending the endless war. Just all this bullshit rhetoric, you know, running to the left of Hillary Clinton on foreign policy, which wasn't hard to do. Um, And then he gets in and immediately nearly doubles the troop numbers in Afghanistan, also in Iraq and Syria. But Afghanistan, he put 14,000 troops there right at the beginning. Kind of similarly to what Obama did when he got in office. No, it's funny. If we do the math, I'm not, I wish I was a math guy, but then I don't think you are either, Abby. I'll just, are, are yeah. you a math person? No. <laughs> okay. So we both, we both have that I'm weakness. Doing, yeah. But I think relatively speaking, so there were, there were what, 40,000 troops or 70,000 troops in Afghanistan when Obama added 30, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how many there were when he took office. I think there are around 70,000. Oh, he, wow. he added Jesus Christ. to the number to be 100,000. Now let's just, let's go with that. So that's, um, you know, let's say three out of 10, that's 30%, uh, you know, and then 70% was what was already there. So Trump gets in office and he adds, uh, so there's already 8,400 or 8,000 or so. And then he adds, he doubles the amount of troops. Yeah. Is that right? Pretty much. So he actually, relatively speaking to the amount of troops, you know, if you want to compare Trump to Obama in terms of warmongeringness or whatever, Trump actually did more, relatively speaking, like right out of the gates. It's like these are things with it's not framed this way because the framing we've been hearing for the last four years is like manipulated to make Trump seem like he's like anti-war or something. I mean, it's just kind of fascinating to think of how the evidence just all stands in the face of that narrative. Yeah, when if you actually look at what Obama did, he removed most of the troops. If you yeah, if you compare the proportionality of it, like Trump pretty much did the same thing when he left as well, you know, comparing to how many troops he added at the beginning. And we can't forget, like you said, Trump told the Pentagon to take the gloves off. Not only that, but like, you know, on one hand, giving them carte blanche to just kill anything that moved with no questions asked and not needing his authority to do so. On the other hand, changing the actual rules of the Pentagon so we didn't we couldn't even count the dead at a certain point because when he first got in, the Pentagon policy of taking the gloves off led to more bombs dropped on Afghanistan than any other president. He dropped more bombs there in 2018 and 2019 than in any other year of the entire war, including in the troop surge, including in the invasion. Um, That's incredible. And of course, that led to uh, the highest civilian casualties at any other point during the entire war. Trump was responsible for that shit. Trump oversaw that, and no one talks it. about that either. <laughs> I don't believe it, Abby. Yeah. Obama was – Hillary and Obama were total war criminals. I don't know where you're getting this information from. We heard Trump bash the the Bush brothers. We heard him bash Jeb and George. I mean, come on. 
You don't like that, Abby? Jeffrey Epstein. Well, out would you of rather Mar-a-Lago. have Hillary Clinton? Would you rather have Hillary? <laughs> It's I mean, like when on. I criticize. It's like when I criticize Tulsi, I get like twenty five yeah, Tulsi yeah. stands in the comments, being like, "Why don't you talk about Bernie? Why yeah. don't you talk about Bernie?" It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, I don't think Bernie's doing tweets every. I mean, he's doing shit about Russia. He says stupid shit, but he's not doing tweets about how like Islam is dangerous. Like every week, that's fucking stupid. Like that's crazy that Tulsi's doing that. That's yeah, ridiculous. F- I'm sorry. It's crazy to endorse Project <laughs> Veritas and James O'Keefe. Like, where? Oh my god. I mean, do we even really need to argue about this? Like, no, you're not on the left, dude. You're I don't not even on think, the left. Yeah, we don't need. You know? don't even need to waste any time. Yeah, on no, right I now. can't. I can't even fucking do it. I can't deal with it. But anyway, yeah. So Trump had a, a quite a legacy in Afghanistan, and everyone kind of remembers him as like he's the guy who oversaw the peace deal, and he really wanted to end the war. Meanwhile, he killed a record number of civilians increased, uh, doubled the amount of bombings and basically changed the policy so we didn't even know who was fucking dying in the last couple of years of his term. So that's Trump's legacy. That's Trump's legacy. And then he left uh, a ton of troops, leaving it open to Biden to escalate the war if he wanted to, while somehow getting the credit for ending the war. Quite bizarre. Yeah, it's, it is very bizarre. And we all know if, if you were paying close attention to what was going on, everybody who was knew that somehow Trump was using one of his own White House advisors that was in, in an unofficial role at that point, but was being paid and seemingly was at the White House all the time, Eric Prince. Uh, Trump seemed to be using Eric Prince to do this little mini PR tour trying to sell a privatization plan for the occupation of Afghanistan. In other words, Trump very early on was floating the idea of ending the Afghanistan war but the explicit intention of letting Blackwater take over the country. So how would that even work? I mean, would it be the Pentagon would just be directing Blackwater? So just be like a privatized army? I mean, what what kind of crazy plan is that? And it's just really disturbing to think that that was being pushed by Trump, but you know, nobody really pinned that to him because I guess it was Eric Prince saying it. It's like, clearly But I thought Eric was, Prince was anti-deep state. He is, Abby. He knows where the bodies are buried. Well, that's what Q said. Oh, cool. Q said that he that Eric Prince knows where the bodies are buried, um, and that's it. Well, you bring up a really important point because this is another aspect of Trump's legacy that is not reported accurately, which is that he is the one who added the private contractors. So even though he left with very little troops in Afghanistan, even though it was a significant enough number to still be fully occupying the country, he, in essence, did privatize a lot of it, because as we know, uh, right when Trump left office, I was shocked to find out from Stars and Stripes that um, there were 18,000 private contractors when Trump left, which means that he was secretly privatizing the war. And no one I mean, was yeah. talking about it when Trump did it. That, that's I what's know. weird to me. It's like people were like, oh, no, Trump is so great. He's trying to end the war. And it's like at the same time, they weren't talking about that. But now that Trump's gone, it's like now it's safe to talk about the fact that there's 18,000 private contractors there. It's just strange. Well, I think that part of what's happening, and I'll just say this without uh, naming any people specifically, is that it does seem like there was a lot of people out there who saw Trump's bull in a china shop nature and saw it as like a useful blunt instrument to achieve some of their own goals, like in a, in a like piggybacking like off of what, like, like like they want to get one over on the Democrats. So as long as like Trump could just keep slamming the Democrats and making them look bad, then you know they wouldn't go after him. Like why waste the energy? Like for the, I, I think this is sort of their strategy. So then when Biden's doing the same thing, it's like now they can just start going back to bashing the Dems. You know, 
And even in some ways, some of that right populist, quasi-right populist stuff, which we're going to get to in a little bit, kind of helped um, make those people feel that they were, you know, helping fight regime change wars and things. It's just all sort of intertwined with that. it's a- Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget C- Craig Murray, that UK diplomat or whatever, who actually came out and said, oh, yeah. I did not, I literally did not criticize Trump because I thought that he was going to pardon Assange. And I think that really just says a lot. It's like, that's really kind of scary. The carrot think- on a stickification. Yeah. Uh, that, whatever that op was. And I'm just going to say, I will go to my grave believing that that was some kind of weird Trump carrot on a stick thing. I don't know what the purpose exactly was, but obviously it was fake. I mean, if why didn't he pardon any of those people? If he could, I mean, he really easily could have. Yeah, um, of Bernard Carrick, like a crazy Iraq war neocon, was obviously sent out by the Trump administration to talk about pardoning Ross Ulbricht. So if that guy could go out there and do it on Fox and get away with it, why couldn't Trump? Well, I think just- if Trump was playing so much of the QAnon base that, that we're going to get into with uh, our next episode, I mean, it really is kind of similar. It's like he knows the obscure factions that will either run cover for him or just straight up, you know, endorse and support him. Yeah. And garner all this energy for him. And I think it was just, I mean, he's fucking savvy, dude. He had Steve Bannon in his ear. Steve Bannon is brilliant strategist. I mean, it's like none of this is an accident. No, and it's funny too how it's like it's still so frustrating and upsetting to talk about this because it's like you can't help but talk about how much of a free pass he got from doing all this shit. Totally. So it's like even just trying to talk about this, I just keep getting like my mind just keeps going and I'm fucking mad. I mean, yeah, I I guess, you know, besides the amount of troops that that Trump added there and all that kind of stuff, um, there, you know, at at a certain point, uh, during Trump's presidency, there was something like 15,000 troops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of Trump's term, he mm-hmm. managed to bring it down from around uh, somewhere around 13,000, 15,000, back down to 2,500. Mm-hmm. But at the time, CENTCOM directly acknowledges in an official statement that there are mm-hmm. actually seven times that many contractors still are, are in Afghanistan at that same time. So 2,500 times seven... Oh, That's wow. That's 17,500. I didn't realize that that was admitted a long time ago from yeah. CENTCOM. Yeah, so that's, that even you know make calls into question even more this idea that Biden would be the one privatizing the war. I mean, in, in, in reality, this is a continuity of policy. Right, of course. That's what's so... And we already know that that's what happens. There's an odd amount of continuity between the Biden and Trump administration. It's just hard to see it because we've been led to believe these you know distortions right. about Trump not being a hawk yeah right like liz cheney is the one who pulled the plug on all those attempts well especially because eric prince was used as a surrogate to float the idea that was really happening behind closed doors to a certain extent yeah and i mean uh you know just like uh i think you already used this clip in an empire files episode but general jack keen who's part of the institute for the study of war the kagan family think tank he admitted on TV that, like, right, like, I think, like, two months before uh, the election, you know, Trump promised that all the troops are going to be home by Christmas. And right before the election, uh, Jack Keane said, yeah, there's no, nothing, like, happening at the Pentagon. There's nothing on paper that there's a withdrawal happening. So it was pretty obvious that there was nothing really that was going to happen. Um, but somehow a lot of people bought into this. Um, they really thought Trump was going to end these wars. And... uh yeah, I mean, it just really didn't end with anything except for, I guess, the only positive thing I could say 
is that at the very least, there was starting to be open talk of a peace deal with the Taliban, which is something mm-hmm. that I don't think that really floated during the Obama administration. Obama, I think they tested the waters with the Bowie-Bergdahl trade-off thing where they like made a prisoner swap mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. not swap, but like, um, yeah, they did some kind of swap with the Taliban. Yeah. No, they did. So, that was like a sort of a first foray into that. And this was like Trump sort of, con- you know, doing continuity of that too. We don't like to talk about how Obama did sort of turn away a little bit from the national security state and did try to do certain things. And Trump did pick up some of those things as well. Um, and I think this is part of that. Like the idea of making a peace deal with the Taliban is sort of runs counter to a lot of the other stuff we saw happening. And it also could be what you were saying earlier, Abby, that it could have been you know, it could have been also for Trump to have that optics of him mm-hmm. being this peacemaker. But that one seemed a little different to me because I don't remember Trump going out there and gloating about that. He really would gloat about North Korea. That seemed really ego-based in a lot of ways. This did not seem like that as much. It just seemed like, well, yeah, this is probably the best thing to do at this point. Um, it seemed more pragmatic from how I saw it. So, I mean, you know, the original peace deal was that they were going to withdraw all the troops by May 2021. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was supposed to be by the time Trump left office. But then Trump, of course, kept over-promising and under-delivering. I mean, this is the, the thing he kept doing, is he kept saying, wouldn't that be nice if all the all our boys come home from Christmas? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring them. They're going to all come home from Christmas. Like, he mm-hmm. would just repeatedly make that promise. I mean, of course he wasn't going to be able to do that. So maybe he already knew he was going to lose, honestly. Like... He's just like, fuck it. Like, I'll just like promise something that's not going to happen at all. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting because the Taliban deal has gone through so many iterations. And at first there was like permanent military installations that were trying to be put forward. And then I think they just realized that they couldn't do it. But like I said before, there is a lot of weird language in the deal that pretty much puts impossible benchmarks on the Taliban and gives the U.S. a pretty wide caveat to re, you know, start any sort of military operations. And even if they do withdraw all the troops, right, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it, it's definitely possible and we'll see when it happens. But um, as of right now, it seems like everyone's on board with this idea. So what does that really mean? Well, the U.S. is definitely not leaving um, they they might be withdrawing conventional forces, but they're re-strategizing the entire policy. And that means, and this is even admitted by like the New York Times and shit, this is thousands of men and women in NATO special ops, covert CIA, dozens of air attack aircraft that are manned or droned in the area. Um, and, you know, all of this basically points to the potential for the U.S. to stay involved. Um, and the fact that, just the fact that they're openly saying that they're going to hold the Taliban accountable, quote unquote, to just continue to bomb them relentlessly or, you know, if the Taliban takes over, they will treat them like any other state to to try to bend them to their will. So we already know what that looks like. So, um, you know, the U.S. is not going to stop trying to impose their will on the Afghan people, even if the troops are removed. And I think that that's a really important point. I think at this day and age, you really don't need to have... Uh, a serious amount of troops in a country to, to just cause a serious amount of damage. I mean, we have such a sophisticated way of waging this sort of endless war, war on terror now that it, it could just be done with, between the CIA, um, the NSA, who's collecting all the data there. They record all the phone calls. We already know about that. 
there's just a lot they can do just with that. And even if they don't have troops there, they could still send in like those Delta Force style mm-hmm. raids where they're not mm-hmm. they're not occupying troops, but they're they're dropped in. They get inserted and then they get um, extracted, you know, like the, whatever, no, like totally. Navy SEAL type shit. I mean, right? No, exactly. So that's and that stuff's been going on in Afghanistan, like even before the troops got there. Right during his big speech, which I think people like aren't paying enough attention to, he essentially said Afghanistan's being folded into the war on terror because he kept saying it's time to end the quote forever war, but like really his speech was all about how the larger war on terror is the most important thing to focus on, which as we know is just a forever war that justifies the kind of things that you're talking about all over the world under the pretext of counterterrorism. And all of these wars will continue unabated from Somalia to Yemen. Conducting these wars from a farther distance and having less scrutiny on them, I think is what the empire prefers. And, you know, he he made that pretty clear. He was like, my team is focusing on significant terrorist threats wherever they arise in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, or elsewhere. Well, that's a pretty fucking wide scope, Biden. Yeah, and I think we have this misconception here that because there's actually been a lot of horror stories that have come out about Afghanistan, like, I think because Iraq, you know, was was basically ended in, a, in, in most ways, um, many years ago, like in terms of like the, you know, what, how, what the scale of which the war was during the Bush era, uh, most of the horror stories we've known about these American wars have come out of Afghanistan. And I think people maybe don't realize that it's like probably just the tip of the iceberg, you know? I mean, think of how easy it would be there for not just troops, but anybody like contractors to get away with doing horrible, horrible things. Oh my God. In Afghanistan without any cameras being around. I mean, there's barely... I mean, there there really are these remote little outposts and stuff for the U.S. Army is where they're alone for, you know, months at a time. And, you know, there's like I was saying earlier there, I knew someone who was just constantly doing intravenous drugs mm-hmm. with the rest of his fellow soldiers while they were in one of these situations. And you really have to wonder how much more crazy shit do we just not know about? Yeah, and especially and, after Trump pardons all the war criminals. It's oh like, what kind God. of message was that sending to the people who were still there? Yeah. And, um, you know, the re- most recent story we heard about Afghanistan was that Australian, uh, um, you know, Australian NATO yeah. troop, I think, that yep. that had just shot, executed like a 15-year-old boy for no reason um, on the side of the road. Totally. And uh, that was all on tape. It had like a body cam. So, you know, that was a rare instance where they had like a body cam. But we already do know about the Garani massacre, which was 100 civilians killed in a single airstrike, which was videotaped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never mm-hmm. seen that. So uh, there's probably so much more that we don't know about. I've heard horror stories. There was a story about a caravan of Afghanistan um, prisoners that we had picked up like in the first few months of the invasion. And that it is, at a certain point, they were all begging for air and, this, and they got oh, suffocated. God. Have you oh, heard about God, this? No, that makes me so... Oh, God. But no, this this apparently really happened. An American soldier shot bullet holes to to create air holes for them, and then they ended up killing a bunch of them with bullet, like bullets, just like shooting through the truck too. And then what they did with the bodies is they basically put them in a mass grave in the middle of nowhere. So what I'm saying is, there's basically you know how like when we went to Alaska, it's like damn, if you wanted to, you know, if you were a serial killer, Alaska might be a good place to live. You know, it's just so remote. So many places you could drop a body. Imagine Afghanistan. Like, it's fucking, it's, it's fucking no man's land out there. Like, they, you could get away with so much awful shit. 
So I, I think Ugh. that's what's really disturbing to sort of let sink in that we don't know anything about in terms of the war crimes that have gone down there. Let me just give like a one minute summary just about the actual like legacy in terms of uh, the human cost and where the country's at today. Fiona Frazier, the UN's human rights chief in Afghanistan, admitted back in 2019 that um, the published figures of the death toll, which is officially it says 150,000 Afghan civilians dead, almost certainly do not reflect the true scale of harm. I mean, I think the death toll could could be several times higher than what we've been told because there's no truth commission. There's been no mortality study actually conducted precisely because of what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and, and look at what Mattis said. We don't have time to dig through these tunnels to count dead bodies. Like these people are fucking garbage. They're like subhumans. bragging about the fact that yes. they don't care. And they're almost trying to tell you like, no, we, we just want to get away with whatever we can get away Absolutely. with because these terrorists are evil. And you, you know, if you're not on board with this and like you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. I mean, it's kind of a different version of like the Bush framing, but it's like if you're dehumanizing these people as much as we are, then you'll understand how cool this is. You know, what yeah. we just said. And then there's millions of Afghans who are wounded or displaced. Uh, it's the second highest refugee population in the world, second to Syria. At God this damn. point right now, 70% of Afghans subsist on a dollar a day. And I mean, just everything's been obliterated, you know, uh, infrastructurally, environmentally, politically, socially, like their land is gone. Um, they don't even have regular electricity in the capital or like drinking water consistently. No, you know, what's really interesting too, I, I just was thinking, and it's a total detour from what you're saying, but like... <laughs> The Taliban was sort of originally portrayed, Abby, as almost like the first iteration of ISIS in the public consciousness. And you know how it was told to us? Do you remember Mm -hmm. the very first story that you ever heard about the Taliban? Try to think back. So the first time I ever heard of the Taliban on the news was that the Taliban government blew up a giant ancient Buddhist statue that existed in Afghanistan like that was like thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen footage of that statue, it is pretty amazing. Like the it, what it looked like was crazy. And it was blown up completely by the Taliban. And like we said at the very beginning of this episode, the Clinton administration and people from the U.S. government like propped that situation up. And that's so it's kind of disturbing to think that that was sort of almost like the proto-ISIS. Absolutely. You just get up outrage that there was this like scourge you know in the world that was like destroying ancient architecture you know it's like this is like just beyond the pale kind of a thing yeah i think i think the true cost and legacy of the war will you know it's yet to be known because we're not leaving you know and we're not leaving with the strikes and god knows what else is going to be happening there so i i think that unfortunately it's going to be a long time before we really can account for what happened and take stock about what actually happened um you know this is a this is ongoing now 40 years well i think here is a good place to end it this uh epically long breakdown of the afghanistan war this proposed end date after we've already gotten several other proposed end dates and yeah the whole ordeal of how many presidents have basically passed the baton on this horrific completely illegal, amoral war based on lies. Thanks again for listening to Media Roots Radio. 
If you liked what you heard on this episode, please consider donating $5 or more per month or per creation. You can subscribe to our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash media roots radio. You get access to our bonus episode that comes out once per month. We're doing a long history series right now as our bonus episodes called The Freemasonic History of the United States. We're already up to episode seven. But that's actually not coming out as our bonus episode this month. Our final bonus episode this month is an episode all about the Hudson Institute, where Abby and I break that down. And that's going to come out right after the episode you're listening to now. So if you're a subscriber, you're going to get two premium bonus episodes back to back. And the Freemasonic History of the United States, episode seven, will come out in the first week of May. Thanks again, everybody. Take care.